Giant Robot FM, your home of all things Mecca, be it giant or otherwise. Welcome to the podcast, as always, loyal listeners. Um, this is, of course, Giant Robot FM. I am Stephen Hero. I always forget to introduce the podcast and myself at the beginning, so I am bucking that trend right now. I am wi- I'm joined virtually by PMC Trilogy, my esteemed co-host and dear friend. PMC, how are you? You know, I'm, I'm happy to be here virtually, also known as uh, everything takes place in the city of Vancouver. More on that later. <laughs> I'm very curious if any of my co-hosts have Canadian experience. Uh, we'll soon find out, I suppose. But we are not alone. We are joined, as we were a few episodes prior, with by Andy, a.k.a. Engine Veer Online. Andy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you guys so much. I'm glad to be here again, 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 I think. Uh, it never gets old. Yeah, our schedule, um, if you've been following our G-Savior coverage litigiously, loyally, you'll know that we took a brief break in between part one and part two of the film, mainly because my daughter was born. Um, so that threw things off a bit, but we are here, back in the saddle, so to speak, and excited to talk about the conclusion to UC Gundam. Am I right? <laughs> Absolutely right. That, that's all she wrote. That's it. No more Gundam <laughs> after this. All right, Andy, you are a well-known figure online, but for those people out there, those poor souls who don't know who you are, please elucidate, um, pr- provide your curricula vitae to them. So of all things, of all things that are important, I am perhaps self-considered, but also outwardly considered by others as well, the... The local and resident Big O expert. I'm pretty sure my Twitter profile says I'm the biggest fan who ever bigged. Uh, <laughs> Kaichi Sato shouted you on Twitter a few months ago. Am I correct? Uh, yes, it was. It was. Um, he was posting screenshots or scans from the Big O art book of the Rogers monologues that he pinned and illustrated that were in, ooh, I think it was Anime Magazine. In 99 and 2000. And I saw that and I was like, hey, here are these, you know, 600 DPI scan reconstructions I made of those and tweeted it at him. And of course, he QRT'd it. And I believe he said something along the lines of thank you for taking so such good care of my work. So that was that was thrilling to say. Yeah, that must have been super gratifying. Yeah, It was. Um, I don't think Katayama is on Twitter and I don't think uh, Konaka is anymore, but uh, Arigasan is, so that's great. I've tweeted at him a couple of things. I think um, I've shared with him 600 DPI scans of the Viz floppy covers of the manga that he uh, produced. So they're, all, they're all where I'm around. But you may be asking yourself, audience members and co-hosts alike, where... Did you get all of these scans from? Oh, well, they're hosted on my personal website, thebigoarchive.com, where I've uh, did it for 2019. I did it for Big O's 20th anniversary. I got to the part of my life where I was like, yeah, I have all this stuff and I have all this knowledge, but I can't really share it with anybody just by posting about it sometimes on Twitter. 
So I scanned up everything I could, found as many interviews as I could, and it's all on that website right now. Uh, I think it's been a blessing for a lot of people just to learn anything at all, but definitely learn more. And I think next year for sure, because I've said this four times now already, there will be new stuff. But I might save it for the 25th anniversary of Big O, which is next year. I'm always surprised how much stuff you can unearth, Andy. Like every time you're drumming up um, hype for a new announcement, I'm like, man, there's still more stuff out there. <laughs> there, Thankfully, there is a limited amount, though. Thankfully, I'm not like some kind of uh, Macross 7 fan or some, you know, Galaxy Express 3.9 super fan where it's literally endless. Did you find the credit card yet? Please tell me you got the, uh, your hands on the credit card. No, unfortunately. Uh, someone I know has the telephone card, which is thrilling. Uh, those are apparently kind of hard to find, but extremely affordable. But I haven't been looking for one. But no, the credit card, I think, is a, it might just be a legend. I don't know. If it's not a legend, I wonder if you got that credit card in the early 2000s, whether or not you could still potentially be grandfathered in. Like, I have an old travel travel credit card with great perks from when I was in college. And because of some contractual legalese, I still have all those same perks. And PNC is always bugging me to get a new credit card because they want me to, they want to take those perks away from me. But I said no. Yeah. So I wonder if the the big O credit card (laughs) functions in the similar way. I wonder if it has distinct perks. I'm sure it's just aesthetic. I, it probably is just aesthetic. Now you get uh you get twenty percent off of your uh, funeral ties if you uh, <laughs> use the Big O credit card. Twenty percent off the next time you need a negotiator. Hey, hey, there we go. I don't, I don't even know if you can just look that up in the the yellow pages. That might age me. I don't know if all these Gen Zs understand what you know yellow pages are, but <laughs> the murder directory. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then outside of just being. Uh, the number one big O kind of guy. I also just, you know, crap post on Twitter about horror and Star Trek and whatever I might be angry or excited about that day. <laughs> You're an excellent follow on Twitter, my friend. Well, thank you very much. And but speaking of Twitter, I'm just, I love your website for a variety of reasons. It is a an invaluable resource for anyone interested in the big O, but also it harken, harkens back to a simpler time on the internet, like a better time, especially in this age of social media rot. So I, I just love visiting it. It's a, a trip down memory lane in a good way. It's, it's, it's funny because a lot of people bring that up. It's like, wow, you, you nailed the early 2000s fan page aesthetic. How did you do that? I'm like, that's really nice of you to say, but that's kind of the extent of my HTML knowledge. So it was a very happy accident that a website I can make today looks just like a website from 2002. Uh, <laughs> you own it really well, though. Oh, right. Well, thank you. And then it, it helps, too, because I, I want to say the website only uses like a meg or maybe half a meg of RAM. So hmm. all I'm saying is this is... We should go back to this website design language. You know, I don't need to use a whole core of memory just to load your homepage. Okay, a whole core of my CPU just to load your homepage. Keep it simple. Yeah, we'll open up an anime, um, uh, what's it called again? What The anime web term, Pike, but what, what are those 90s internet term for when you chain a bunch of websites together? Web ring, web ring. Yes, okay. Sorry, I had to like... Do- immediately dive into a part of my brain I haven't used in a long, long time, <laughs> shuffling through the stacks. 
Now, speaking of old stuff, Andy, um, we talked last time about your journey through Gundam Wing, but you also did a rewatch of G Gundam recently. I know you're an Imagawa guy. I think I can speak for PMC here. So are we. Giant Robo rules. So I wanted you to give you a chance to heap some praise on the first AU Gundam series. In short, G Gundam is terrific. Um, I think one of the reasons I love it as much as I do is it exists in defiance of Gundam. I, it, there are, of course, tropes that are Gundam tropes that exist in G Gundam, or else it really wouldn't be ju- uh, Gundam at all at heart. But it's, it's so willing to just be free and do whatever it wants to do, to reference movies from all across the world over the past, like, 40 or 50 years to just be, you know, a, a Wuxia sci-fi political intrigue movie or, or a television show with about giant robots fighting for control of the universe. And that, that freedom, that creative freedom, that creative passion from uh, the pointed ideology of Imagawa, the, the one and only, makes it a thrilling watch. Yeah, it's kind of not Gundam. It, it kind of is Gundam, but it's kind of not Gundam. And it's 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 gorgeous, it's beautiful, it's over the top. The score is great, the characters are fun. Um, Okawara, Kunio Okawara definitely had a lot of fun, I feel like, making this show. One of my favorite anecdotes about G Gundam is uh, Imagawa coming up to him and saying, hey, you know, it's okay to feel like you're back on Yatterman. Like, and you can you can design stuff and have fun like you did on Yatterman. As the story goes, that's where the Nether Gundam came from. <laughs> <laughs> Which also, uh, and this is conjecture on my side, but you see throughout the second half of the show, the Nether Gundam's always getting defeated and blown up and stomped on. Uh, like to me, that seems like a callback to uh, the Dorombo gang from Yatterman. Because every week they'd make a new robot and it would always get destroyed. I'm like. Something tells me there's a little bit more going on there. But it's, uh, I guess to re-answer the question, it is a thrilling show. I feel like Imagawa works best in smaller chunks. Some of his biggest calling cards kind of get spread around a little bit. Maybe the things that don't happen in between aren't quite as strong. But overall, it's still one of the best Gundams made, like hands down. PMC, have you seen any G Gundam? No, I have not. <laughs> Yet, it's been a. I'm a G Gundam fan, but it, it's a, been a long time since I've last watched it. I I think the last time I watched it f- fully to completion was its Toonami run back over 20 years ago. I'm interested in revisiting it. I'm not sure if it's going to happen anytime soon, but it's it's on my distant my my always um, getting larger things to do list and things to watch list. Yeah, I think I had fallen off the Toonami train by the time that aired. I was probably busy being a little piece of shit on Counter-Strike servers or something at that Uh. time. So, uh, (laughs) you know, one one phase of childhood to another. Yeah, playing that Revolutionary War mod of Half-Life. That's correct. Battlegrounds 2, the only Revolutionary War mod for Half-Life 2. Important foundational (laughs) part of my upbringing. Yeah, forget, what is it, Counter-Strike 2. Bring back that. (laughs) Yeah. 
But you're not. You're also working on some projects on the side too, Andy. You've got some fan stuff, fandom irons in the fire, which is super cool. Um, you've been fan subbing the French dub. Yes, they dubbed it in French of the Big O. So tell us about this. What's the story behind the French dub, and how's the how's the experience been? Well, the story behind the French dub is I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I know I don't even remember where I got these files from. If whoever it is that gave me those is listening, I apologize. I tried to go through all my DMs and be like, keyword French. No, no, uh, keyword Big O. Okay, that brings up way too much. Uh, <laughs> Does someone just appear mysteriously in your DMs, like uh, the re- merchant from Resident Evil 4, and just give you those files? I mean, that's probably, that sounds like that, that's a highly probable uh, situation. Uh, I had a couple of people just show up and be like, hey, you want these? I'm like, sure. Yeah, I'll take these. Uh, uh, midnight run VHS rips of Big O. Sure, why not? That's very old internet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that's the closest I'll ever have to tape trading, even though I did uh, trade Godzilla tapes in fourth grade there for a while. That was really fun. Mm. But so, yeah, I have no idea where I got them from. All I know is that I have them. And I don't, there's no news, no articles, no information really about this on the internet. I know ANN has at the bottom of their page on Big O the French cast and the French company listed. But other than that, that's, as far as I'm concerned, there is just no information that I'm aware of about this dub, besides just the obvious. Um, Were seasons one and two dubbed? Just one. Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah. I uh, wonder if there's a, like, not thriving, but um, I wonder if any... French fandom around Big O exist online. That would be curious to learn because I know that you know uh, was it Red Baron was very very popular in Mexico. Uh, V three Kamen Rider V three I think was very popular in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. And then there's the classic story of I want to say it's Come Battler was uh, really popular somewhere, and it was so popular that they had to cancel it in fear of. Uh, them, the citizens actually overthrowing the government. I think that was Combatler. It was one of those '70s robot shows. Yeah, you know that actually that that hooks back into our G Savior History episode because when we were discussing one of the scriptwriters, uh, Mark Simmons mentioned that I think it was uh, Stephanie Pinasai, who I believe was from the Philippines, was a huge Voltus Five fan. Oh, that's what that's it was. right. Voltus yes. V. Yeah. 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 Which happens to look just like Cumbattler, so <laughs> I'm absolved. Um, but the oh, these... don't worry, no judgment here, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> it's not my fault that Cumbattler, Voltez, Goshogan, uh, what's the other one? Um, not Riding. Riding's pretty unique. Uh, the other two Tomino robots, Ditarn Three and Zambot Three. Right, they both have three in their name. It's not my fault that all of those look almost identical. Right. Look. Okay. Um, but right. So the files that I was given just sat on my hard drive. I never even watched them because they don't have English subtitles on them. It's French subtitles and whatever language they speak in the Netherlands. Is it Dutch? Doesn't matter. Yeah. Either way, neither of them are English. And so I'm like, well, I don't really want to watch it if I don't if I can't read along with it. So this year, now that Bandai, well, Sunrise or whatever remains of Sunrise, uh, is actually uploading Big O to their official Japanese YouTube channel. And a lot of Japanese people and fans are watching it for the very first time, which is 
actually been kind of interesting to see. I took it upon myself to, to be like, okay, I'm going to put English subtitles myself on these French episodes of Big O and then upload them to the Internet Archive. It's been somewhat of a trial by fire learning how to subtitle things. Well, I'm not subtitling as much as I am retiming and then holding my phone with Google Translate up to my center channel to see what they're saying. <laughs> very, very professional setup. Is that what they're doing at Discotech? Uh, maybe. I think it might be a couple of bars <laughs> above that. Uh, no, Discotech's great. We all love Discotech. All, nothing but all due respect to them. But right, so that's been... I, I colored my subs yellow because Team Yellow Subs... And those have been, I think I've finished episode, I'm halfway through eight now. And I think as of this recording, episode four has been uploaded to the Internet Archive. Uh, I think you can find it just by doing the big O, French audio, English subs, dubs that time forgot. And it's, uh, I have an unlimited amount of respect for fan subbers now. Because that stuff is actually the worst thing to have to deal with. <laughs> I, I imagine timing is such a pain in the ass. It can be, and I'm not even, I, ha, I already have subtitles for it, so it's not like I'm typing them all out. I just have to fix things that are obviously different, which has been more than I would have expected. But yeah, I couldn't imagine doing that from scratch. So all, all infinite and all due respect to every fan subtitler out there. You guys, for the past 20 years, have made anime what it is. You know, I made it the phenomenon. Uh, Toonami, of course, did had its part two, as well as a sci-fi channel and MTV, but fan subs really did a lot. So, Subtitler sounds like the name of a 70s mecha show, like Subtitler 5. <laughs> Not to be confused with Ditarn 3 or Zambot 3 or no, Voltis no. 5. Yeah, Subtitler was the follow-up to Zabungle. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's, it's that uh... Linguini meme. It's that Scrumble, <laughs> scrumble Bungle meme. Yeah. <laughs> It's uh, The dub is interesting, too. I don't want to labor on this too much because folks just need to go listen to it. But it's uh, French Roger is an interesting character. He is surprisingly equally more compassionate and equally more a jerk <laughs> than English or Japanese Roger. It's been interesting. The, 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 some, some of the lines that are different... As much as I can kind of decipher them, I'm pretty sure mostly they're accurate. But some things I'm sure I'm getting wrong. Uh, it's, it's 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 some of the things that are changed are different. They do make it a unique viewing. So I'm I'm looking forward to get that done, and then I can actually watch it instead of just proofreading it. Do you have a fav a favorite French performance? Like, are there any standouts? Hmm. I haven't heard French Eugene yet. Okay. I imagine he's going to be interesting. Uh Let's see. How, the, how's French Daston? I imagine that could translate really well. Oh, he's good. He's very coarse, like coarse sounding. Like that guy, his voice actor probably definitely actually smokes. <laughs> <laughs> it's France, uh, so there's a 90% chance that's true. Right. Yeah. Even nowadays, not just in the 90s when smoking was literally everywhere. Uh, let's see. Bonnie was all right. I'm, I'm thinking back to some of the, the bigger episodes. Bonnie was fine. Uh, Colonel Gauss and all the police weren't uh, like they weren't great. But they were fine. Oh, yeah. Uh, I say Alex Rosewater has been pretty good too. Mm -hmm. And then uh, whoever they have for Dorothy is she. 
So people always say in English, they say the English Dorothy, Leah Sargent's really, really sassy. And I'm like, no, you don't really understand. But French Dorothy, we're talking about some major, major sass. Even going so far as to say, like when Roger's telling her in, in the underground terror, it's like, you know, uh, was it Dr. Wainwright was the leading man in Android uh, technology. Her response is, he was a fraud. He was a hobbyist, nothing special. I'm like, oh, <laughs> okay. I wonder if any of those voice actors also worked on other shows that we hold near and dear to our hearts, the, the French dub version. I have to do some deep diving into that. Maybe so. France does have a very thriving anime and especially manga community. They get a lot of dope releases in France to the point where I'm very, very jealous. Oh, okay. All I know is they did Inspector Gadget, and that's what matters. (laughs) (laughs) Now, before we depart from this topic entirely, PMC, let's whet listeners' appetites. Give them a taste of the French dub. How about Roger's first P.I. monologue? Mon nom est Roger Smith. Je fais un boulot indispensable ici, dans cette ville amnésique. Now, we're almost at our G-Savior Part 2 discussion proper, but before we get there, I unearthed another historical artifact related to G-Savior. Um, like I said before, unsurprisingly, and we only have myself to blame here, we ran a bit long, so we'll be covering the second half hour, I guess the second... 45 minutes of the film on this episode, so roughly from the 43-minute mark until the end. Um, But like I said, I unearthed a fun artifact. Bandai Entertainment included an insert with some of their DVD releases around the time Char's Counterattack came out in August 2022, with short summaries of all the Gundam shows released in America up until that point. Now, if you know your chronology well, you'll know that Char's Counterattack came out on DVD in August 2002. I said 2022, that's a typo on my part, 2002. G-Saver on DVD came out in 2001, so it had already been out by that point in time. So a lot of people already knew that G-Saver was a thing. So PMC, without further ado, why don't you read the synopsis? Humanity struggles to survive as widespread famine spreads throughout the Earth and its orbiting space settlements known as sides. Ex-congressional pilot Mark Kern stumbles across a conspiracy to suppress a discovery that could potentially end the food crisis. Utilizing an advanced mobile suit, the G-Savior, Kern is able is thrust into battle against a powerful congressional force. But can the colonies prevail against such overwhelming odds? Settlements, Bandai. Settlements. You see, sun, what's, what are you doing, Sunrise? I called Settlements. Yeah, this is this is strange. I, I mean, I, I so first of all, I was curious if that was a a, a typo. The tw- the twenty twenty two thing it was like DVD release in twenty twenty two, but also like I I I really do wonder when is like the last time in history that Bondi acknowledged the existence of G Savior. I guess it would be the the cameos in the because uh, there was a cameo in one of the Bill Divers, right? Yes. I, I believe it was the first episode of the first series. So okay. Not the movie, which was, I think, Gundam Builders. It was mm-hmm. the first series after that. I'm pretty sure it was the first battle in the first episode. Okay. Yeah, the G-Saver gets shit-canned real quick. Right, right. Yeah. But remember, his death only proves that he lived. True. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I, I've I've read anecdotally about Sunrise and Bondi being posed the question, hey, what about G-Savior? And anecdotally, those companies, you know, skirting the issue. But I haven't actually read it firsthand. People bug Nozomi sometimes about releasing G-Savior on Blu-ray, to which they basically say it's not happening. i sure they don't have the rights for it. Yeah, that could probably be it. Yeah, if they had the rights, they would be releasing it, I'm sure. Right. I, I mean, again, who knows if an HD transfer even exists? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I hope so. The master... I, fingers crossed. We talked about... We're, PMC and I were talking about uh, losing source code earlier today, and I Ooh. hope that there is uh, the master print of G-Savior somewhere around. One can hope. Give me give me G-Savior on Blu-ray and give me a master grade G-Savior. Just do it already. Yeah, and the Fathom events can show it in theaters. Yeah. <laughs> PMC and I can go to a deserted mall movie theater and watch it by ourselves. Perfect. All right, my friends, are you ready to uh, get into the proverbial G-Savior and blast off? Please. So after a rocky liftoff and turbulent ascent through the atmosphere, Mark Curran and co. slip the surly bonds of Earth and behold the wonder of space. Meanwhile, our obligatory Gundam cops, General Garneau and Colonel Jack Hale, Review the body cam footage of Jack's botched arrest and Mark's successful escape. Garneau orders Jack to retrieve the vial at whatever cost, even if it means inciting a war. You know, PMC pointed this out last episode, but I think it bears mentioning again. Garneau's office is full of fascist and martial signifiers, the most obvious of which is the Gallia, um, which if you know your Roman history is the red-plumed helmet of a centurion. Uh, if you walk into someone's room and see this, the red flag should be raised. Uh, <laughs> and this is actually pretty topical considering what's going on in the news right now. Uh, the, I, there is a killer Clarence Thomas Harlan Crow joke in here somewhere. And I'll leave, you, I'll leave it up to the listeners to come up with said joke. Uh, the Centurion helmet is very distinct. Um, I think it's almost cross-cultural, just, just how much it appears in uh, popular culture around the globe. But this isn't the first time a Gundam designer decided to use the Gallia as a visual stand-in for war. You know, perhaps most memorably, Hajime Katoki worked it into the design of the Tall Geese One, the base model, and it makes it really distinct. Andy, you're, of course, you're a huge uh, proponent of Gundam Wing. How do you feel about the Tall Geese? Well, the Tall Geese is an absolutely wonderful suit. I think before I found out that Tall Geese is not actually its name, it's supposed to be, I think it's Thurgeest, which is like a summoner of spirits, which also makes sense. Uh, I just, I appreciate it that the tall geese, like, it's just a big suit. That's where the tall comes from. And it's like, I, I like that puerile, you know, kind of uh, aesthetic and naming language to what is, at the end of the day, just an absolutely badass suit. Or just, un, just so much power, almost killing its pilots by going so fast. And right, the whole Roman look to it is a very big plus. Now, I will say... Tall Geese 2 is best Tall Geese. That was my follow-up question. <laughs> but the Tall Geese 1 is right there with it. I'm a Tall Geese 3 stand myself. I'm just, mm. I'm, it, it, when I'm ranking them, I'm only including the first three, so um, I know insult meant to the Tall Geese Flugen, but, or Flugel, um, but I'm only considering the first three for this episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. Well, one thing, I know we brought this up uh, in the last episode. We were talking about how the the consent uniforms looked pretty, you know, Reiki last time. I was shocked just in this scene as well. It's like, okay, the the 
what General Garneau and Jack are wearing in this scene are probably the most textbook accurate Nazi uniforms I've pretty much ever seen in Gundam. Except maybe for that one time in MS Igloo where a literal SS, like Indiana Jones level SS guy shows up. But outside of that, it's like this, oof, uh, message received. <laughs> yeah. What's the subtext meme? Only cowards use subtext. Right, this, yeah. This is text. <laughs> I know writers who use subtext and they're cowards. Yeah, it's then, very obvious, but this, this, this messaging totally tracks. And then on the TV uh, thing, I have a quote here. Political unrest is being held in check by congressional forces. Haha. Say no more. <laughs> we didn't know exactly what's going on. I have a question. Does Congress have a Congress? Because later on in my notes, I'm going to say uh, General Garneau acted without presidential approval. And I first wrote, just unthinkingly, oh, he acted without congressional approval. And then I thought, oh, did I inadvertently stumble into a pun? And then, oh, does Congress have Congress? Uh, I mean, we know there's a president because there was a, we met the president during the first half of the movie. Are there representatives, a Senate? Who can say? At this point, I always my, think... My gut is there is, though. My gut is there is because it doesn't seem like the uh, military has full control yet. There is an and old... I feel, like, I, I feel like... Sorry, not to cut you off, PFC. I feel like the consent is America. There's an old wordplay joke that says, if, if pro is the opposite of con, is progress the opposite of Congress? <laughs> and that's all I have to offer here. <laughs> PMC, everyone. This guy. <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> Make Brendan Elliott proud. Mm -hmm. Speaking of America, Mark, Mimi, Cynthia, Kobe, and Dieter arrive in New Manhattan, a settlement, a.k.a. Colony, located in Side 4. As its name suggests, the architects of New Manhattan designed the settlement to be an orbiting facsimile of New York City complete with its own Statue of Liberty and recreation of Central Park. All right, so I have a question for you all. I'm, I'm looking at PMC here. Because he, I know he swims in these waters, these obscure Gundam Universal Century waters, but Andy, feel free to weigh in here as well. Has Side 4 factored into later UC Gundam much, or I guess UC Gundam writ large? Like We see a lot of Side 3, 6, and 7 in First Gundam and Origin, both of which we covered on the podcast, but I don't recall side four showing up. All right. I, I This is a good question to ask. It's also a question that I regret looking up the answers to. <laughs> Sometimes I'm glad I have PMC because I'm like, all right, I'm just going to throw a question here. PMC can do the legwork. Yeah. So here's here's the deal. Uh, apparently, there is a reorganization of sides at some point, uh, maybe around uh, shortly after uh, the Grips conflict, which is the events of Zeta Gundam. So that kind of muddies the waters a bit. Uh, it seems like part of the issue here is the labeling of sides is maybe not always consistent. And also the sides are typically associated with Lagrange points, you know, the, the various points orbiting around the Earth, usually in relation to the Earth and the Moon. Side 4 is, at this point, supposed to be the Lagrange point between the Earth and the Moon. Whatever. Here's what I'll say. The potentially most relevant things are the side four is originally the location of the Thunderbolt Shoal, which is the setting for the first part of Gundam Thunderbolt. 
the Thunderbolt mm-hmm. Shoal being a collection of debris uh, from the, I think, the remnants of some battles or some other blown up spaceships. It, it, part of the part of the reason uh, the the stuff I looked into indicated some mix potential mix ups between side four and side five. Side five is generally considered to be the site of the Battle of Loom. Uh, I should have said all of this is not origin. This is not not consistent with origin. Don't pay attention to origin. In origin, uh, I think Battle of Loom is in like side two or something. What I can say more consistently than Thunderbolt is that it seems that frontier the frontier colonies, which are the uh, locations that where Gundam F ninety one is set, that those pretty those seem pretty conclusively to be side four, uh, the frontier one, two, and four. So, I think what I feel safe in saying is that Gundam F ninety one takes place in side four, and where you go from there, it's kind of kind of up to you. And keep in mind, listeners, when I say side, there's a bunch of colonies that make up a side. So it's not just one single floating unit. There are many, at least usually, if I'm reading it correctly. PMC, I know you have some thoughts on New Manhattan. Uh, I, I don't know. I think it's kind of it's kind of cute. Facsimile is a good word, Steven, for describing what is what is present here. I it has the feeling of the the like. The toy Statue of Liberty being sold as tourist memorabilia. The f- mm. the fact that they put, I, I said, I've said this several times already. The fact that there is a Statue of Liberty in the middle of what appears to be a body of water in a recreated Central Park is simply very funny. It is funny in the meta context of you know the Japanese creatives doing this because remember, I think this footage is really from the original teaser. I don't think this is the footage like the Gundams, uh, the, the mobile suits. That's really created later for the movie, I think. I think this is this colony flyover shot is from that original teaser. Correct. And so, you know, that's really reflects a, a different set of creative sensibilities. Um, and there's also some other stuff. I mean, I'm going to save my my uh, my Vancouver locations for when we discuss the theater. But just the fact that they're kind of trying to blend it into being Vancouver uh, is also very funny to me. There's a, a there's a sensibility of like the Matrix here, where it's like yeah, this is we decided late '90s cities were the peak. Here you go, we put a late '90s city in space. Yeah, the end of history. Yeah, that's right. And did you have affinity to New York City or with New York City? A lot of my favorite pieces of media take place in New York City. So of course we have Big O, but we also have Ghostbusters. Uh, Dario Argento's Inferno. It doesn't take place in New York, I don't think. Unless it does. But I know that uh, Mater uh, Tenenbaum's house is um, mm. there. I think it was Tenenbaum, because there's three. There's Suspiriorum, Tenenbaum, uh, and uh, Lacrimarum. So it's Mater Lacrimarum's house. is The actual house is in New York, but they made a scale model of it to film in Italy. But so there's that, uh, that little rabbit trail. Of course, TMNT and... So I have an affinity for things that were filmed there. And this is usually how I describe most places to visit. People ask me, it's like, oh, uh, you're going to go to Europe one day, right? It's like, yeah, a couple of my shows, favorite shows were filmed there. It's like, oh, what about all the history? It's like, that comes second. The shows are history. You're right. You know, you're absolutely right. 
But it's like, you know, it's like the history, the actual real world history is not enough to make me want to go to a place. But if there's television shows that were filmed there or movies that were filmed there, I'll go for that. And then, okay, I'll see history along the way. <laughs> I went to New York, I guess, to further answer your question. I went to New York for the first time two years ago with a very good friend of mine. I think I remember you uh, tweeting about it. Yes, I hope I did. because It was a lot to see. And he's from uh, Long Island. And so we spent basically the whole week just going around New York, seeing the things I wanted to see, seeing the things he wanted to see, visiting some family. And then that weekend, we ended up at Anime NYC, which was a great time. Uh, very thrilling place. I should probably go back one day and see the rest of the things, movies I didn't see the first time. But it's definitely a keen joint just to have, just being a city that old, right? Neat place. So my thoughts about the New Manhattan Colony are mixed. On the one hand, I do like PMC find it very charming. PMC will no doubt will find this completely unsurprising at knowing me as well as he does. But sometimes I look up online old rips of high definition VHS tapes and there's a great one of New York City footage from probably like a travel commercial that was collected on HD VHS tapes, and it is sublime. It's just people walking around New York City in the early 90s, like in, with like crystal clear clarity. Just oh, type wow. it in, look it up on YouTube. It's the first thing that pops up, and it tells a little story in the, it's in the four minutes that it runs, and it's great. It, like, it has such cozy vibes for me as, as a child of the 90s, and I kind of get that here. Big Parasite Eve's vibe, Parasite Eve vibes, you know, a CG recreation of New York City. Uh, in the 90s that I really like. Um, I guess look, thinking about it more abstractly and philosophically, though, this is such a bleak vision of the future. Like, what's what's the Austin Walker quote? We could have made them look like anything, but we made them look like us. It's like, like, like the Texas colony, the TGI Fridays colony. Like, it speaks <laughs> to such a lack of imagination of late-stage capitalism or late, 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 late capitalism, however it's being defined this far out in the UC timeline. Like, it's consumeristic, kitschy, and uninspired. That being said, my parents would totally live here. Wow, just throwing your family under the bus. <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't live there, but I would visit there. There there's like a, a a really cool juxtaposition you could do of like the laborers building New Manhattan under incredibly adverse conditions, I'm sure, and then like them propping up the Statue of Liberty or as the Statue of Liberty is being built, they're just like literally uh bleeding and sweating blood and tears uh, building the space colony after probably being jettisoned up there against their will. Mm. The fivesome arrive at a chic, faux-futuristic party. Aura passes for chic in UC-0223. They strike up a conversation with an Illuminati operative masquerading as a bartender. With a machine gun stowed under the counter, he asks them what they'd like. Cynthia, understanding the assignment, tells him... They're all going to start off with a picture of Philippe Margaritas. Mimi, however, insists that she wants a martini, much to the annoyance of Cynthia. Before anything can go south, Philippe, a friend from Mark's soldier days and Cynthia's contact, walks over and vouches for the group. Okay, so this scene is definitely meant to be comedic, no matter how you spin it. But mm -hmm. I feel like the, the great debate here is... How much is Mimi aware of what she's doing at any given time? <laughs> and so I'm wondering now upon multiple repeated viewings of this film, 
is Mimi aware? Now, I'm not saying the spycraft is good. Saying the real person's name, Margaritas, and then Margaritas is not like sophisticated spycraft by any stretch of the imagination. That's, that's good campy Bond spy shit, though. <laughs> right. That is, you know, it's a cold morning in April or whatever. You know, it's you said the phrase. Ian Fleming, eat your heart out. <laughs> uh, but But we know that Mimi is going to be a saboteur by the end of this film. Is she playing up the idea that she is a harmless, innocent idiot in order to, you know, not draw attention? I imagine this is a debate we're going to have later. I'm in the <laughs> Mimi is ignorant camp now. I knew PMC was going to fall on the other side on this. Um, but I, well, I guess I'll present my reasoning for this later um, because it's going to come up later in the film. But as of now, in my opinion, I think Mimi is completely oblivious to she what's going on. She just wants a martini. Yeah. Okay. I might have to be on the side of she's ignorant as well, to be honest. Because, right, later in the movie, she does do saboteur stuff. But it doesn't seem like that's... It probably pulled from knowledge that she has, but not knowledge that she gained for the purpose of being a saboteur. Right? Yeah, it's funny because I feel like the film isn't sure at times. It feels like in an earlier draft she was. All right, I'll just say it now. When she gets to Gaia and she says, I need to get a shower, um, they c- maybe she needs um, the privacy of her own room for some saboteur shit, or maybe she just wants a shower. We do get a cutaway later to when she's in the room. It seems like something strange is about to happen, but then she only she's only like getting ready for her day. Um, we don't actually see some spy shit. I feel like in order for her to be a saboteur definitively, she would have to, the film would have to commit to showing that on screen. Hmm. Look, what I'm going to say, just right now, a quick one-sentence summary. I don't think an ordinary person would be able to improvise sabotaging the satellite defense systems through their hotel Wi-Fi. <laughs> also another good point. We'll get there, though. We'll get there. I, I'll tell you, what this scene absolutely did make very clear to the audience is the humor in this scene. Because honestly, I'm of the opinion that it was pretty effective. Like, just seeing them go back and forth was one thing, but then having Philippe come up to Mimi and say, make yourselves comfortable and order what you like. Thanks, I've been trying. Yeah, I've like been that, trying. <laughs> that gets me. That gets me every time. That's, that's genuinely good. <laughs> yeah, co-signed. Uh, I, I have such a great time watching this movie. Um, the comedic beats go down real easy, usually. All right, so I have two. I have to issue two corrections this episode, and here's the first one. Though I feel this one is slightly less my fault. Okay, it doesn't seem that there are two Philippe's in G Savior. Probably in my notes and in our previous episode, I referred to Simmons, the third in Mark and Daggett's little workplace threesome, as Philippe. Mark calls him Simmons, which is probably his last name. But in the unofficial English subtitles, which were transcribed and added by fans, again, shout-outs to those fans, as Andy mentioned at the beginning of the episode, Daggett refers to him as Philippe. Now, thinking that this was his first name, I went with it, because I was referring to everyone else by their first names, so thinking that it was Philippe Simmons, I just went with it. But in the credits and, and in the novel, he's just Simmons, and I re-listened to this bit of dialogue a bit, which happens around the four-minute mark a bunch of times, and I've concluded that Daggett could be saying Philippe or come here. Like, whatever the case, I should have referred to him as Simmons, so that's my bad. Philippe definitively is the Illuminati dude. But but hell, maybe there is another Philippe. Forget bigger Luke theory. 
How about Shadow Philippe Theory? Can I just say I can't believe that we never mark we never get like a like a one second scene of Mark's friends being released from jail. They're they're so dead. A hundred percent. Well, he might be too at the end of the episode. Yes. We'll, I mean, at the end of the movie, as we'll talk about. Right. After a quick mention of their dead comrade, Philippe asks if the mission was successful. Smiling, Cynthia reveals the vial. Bioluminescence is real, she declares. Mark, eager for more information, wants to know if consent had Dr. Riva retired from the project the moment they discovered its potential. Mark, Philippe cryptically asks, how much do you know of the organization I work for? Mark says he doesn't know much about the Illuminati, so Philippe begins to illuminate, see what I did there? Them on the specifics of his organization. Bringing bioluminescence to the Illuminati is so funny. And I, <laughs> I want, I want to know which of the writers was like, you know what? We're going to, we're going to call them the Illuminati and we're going to bring the light to them. The shadow organization. It's going to be great. And I don't know what they think they mean by it, but I'm very entertained. What they mean by it is that G savior is good. Actually. That's right. That is correct. <laughs> I, I have to agree with that. You know, it's funny. A lot of, um, I have three Gundam The Origin fans on the call, so it's uh, nice to be among peers. Um, but there's always a lot of tension in the Gundam community, especially in the more intellectual corners of the Gundam community, like the Tomino-Yasuhiko divide. But we could all come together and appreciate you, Savior, I think. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. What, it's what unites us all. <laughs> I, do, I do like that there just is a third party. Just a, just a background playing third party, kind of like a, uh, makes me think of the Shuffle Alliance, honestly, a little bit, like from G Gundam, uh, though they're not really trying to figure out what's the best way to wage war. Uh, but they, uh, they kind of remind me of like a backdoor version of the Bene Gesserit from Dune. Just like we're trying to see whose pockets we can fill and whose pockets we can pick to make all of these wars kind of go our way. All of this is kind of deflated by the immediate exposition dump, but honestly, it's still a neat idea. Yeah, I'm always open to more factions in my Gundam. I have thoughts about how the Illuminati portray is portrayed, but I'm not against the idea of the Illuminati in Gundam. Yeah, not everything can be Gundam Wing where you have 13 going on at once, but... <laughs> yeah, this is now the anti-Trace fa faction everywhere. <laughs> Well, Philippe begins, we started out as a sort of private club that grew out of idle chatter. About five years ago, when we noticed the shifting balance of power in the Congress, so we decided, but Mimi cuts him off. So you decided you make a difference by financing rebel activities? Create your own sort of checks and balances by becoming guardian angels of space? It's right, noble, so isn't it? <laughs> so <laughs> took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> All right, so we got to talk about the Illuminati. Uh, this is now uh, on Apple I, uh, on our Apple Podcast app. Put uh, under Giant Robot FM. File us under Illuminati Podcast, as, of which I'm sure there are scores. Now, per Mark Simmons, the Illuminati is a secret society that strives to preserve the delicate balance of the post-Federation era, 
With no formal command structure or headquarters, the Illuminati is a worldwide network of scientists, journalists, military veterans, and other civilians who cooperate to advance the organization's goals. So in effect, uh, this is Mark's summary. I'm going to go into my interpretation of the portrayal of the Illuminati in just a moment. Uh, the, the Illuminati is a paramilitary organization that operates secretly and without oversight to maintain peace. I feel, I might be speaking out of turn here, but I feel like this trope is used more in AU Gundam. I'm thinking of Preventer, which was established at the end of Endless Waltz, or Celestial Being in Gundam 00. Um, not to say that paramilitary organizations don't exist in the Universal Century. They do, certainly. But I feel the AU shows dip into this well a little bit more often. So I was thinking about this because I was trying to compare, in my mind, I was very much comparing the Illuminati to another organization in in the UC, which is the anti-Earth Union group, AUG, uh, who, of course, are the effectively the protagonist faction of Zeta Gundam and Double Zeta, and they just sort of like flitter away at the end of Double Zeta, and, and <laughs> a bunch of them resurface in Londo Bell. Uh, I I'm not clear if that part that particular part of the history is is well documented, but nevertheless the AU do represent a similar sort of informal grouping of industrialists, you know, Federation soldiers who left the Federation in disgust of the of the Titans, and you know they're they're kind of more reformist movement. They only really become a military in response to the Titans emerging as you know as a military force, and of course later on. Uh, in the first New Zeon War in response to Axis Zeon under Haman Khan. So what I'm saying is that I have trouble separating the two because the Illuminati, much like AUG, is not anyone's government. But it is you know an organization that is open to using force to fight somebody. In this case, they show up with an army. That's sort of the decisive blow at the end of the film. Um I don't know how to explore this connection further. I feel there's probably a lot of supplemental material that might dig into the egg uh, that would allow me to further make a you know compare you know compare contrast. But I it's, you, mean the, the, you mean the Illuminati, right? Oh, I I meant on the egg. Is there, uh, there might be some material on the Illuminati? In in I mean maybe do you know if the novels get into it at all? I think the novels shed a little bit more light, but the radio dramas do as well. Yeah, I mean I just meant it, there's probably like. Zeta and Double Zeta adjacent manga that talks about Aeg. Or even Karaba, you know, the, the Earth-based counterpart. Mm-hmm. So, while I don't share Mimi's perspective here, like, her job relies on the hegemony of the Congress of Settlement Nations. That, that government has to be doing all right for her to be doing all right. So she has a very knee-jerk reaction to the idea of the Illuminati. Like, uh, she clearly sees the Illuminati as a threat to the status quo, which is why she's so quick to call them terrorists. Um, but I don't also, uh, but also I don't disagree with her sentiment. Like, this is a classic "Who watches the Watchmen" conundrum. And unlike a UC Gundam, which is why I didn't bring UC Gundam up as a point of comparison earlier, I feel that G Savior isn't concerned with that question. Like, other than this one line, the film isn't interested in that critique. Like, it props up the Illuminati as a beneficent organization that can do no wrong. Like, this is partly what Tomino was getting at with his criticism, I think, of G Savior. And in this regard, I do share those concerns. The Illuminati feels just a little too convenient and above reproach for my tastes. I know this film is only 90 minutes long, but I wish there was more nuance to its depiction of power, especially considering 
that the Illuminati seems ideological rudderless. Like, assuming Mark Simmons' description is accurate, which, based on having watched the film several times, I think it is, the Illuminati is reluctant to tip the scales too far in any direction. Sure, they position themselves against the consent military, but they don't seem interested in toppling it or replacing it with an alternative. They strike when the circumstances become too dire or when it's convenient but only enough to restore the status quo, which honestly is fine. That could be the commentary, but I feel like the, the film doesn't back that commentary. I just wish it was a little bit more cognizant of this and acknowledged it. Like, wouldn't it be dope if, like, Mark pushed back against Philippe here? Like, I'm just making up mumbo-jumbo here, but, like, what if Mark said, like, where was the Illuminati when the Munzo massacre happened? Or, like, what was the Illuminati... Where was the Illuminati when martial law was declared on side two? Or, like, something like that. Like, you get my point. I kind of wish that level of critique was here in the film. Yeah, given given the fact that G Savior is a story that is attempting to sort of exist in a new place in time, but also be in the in the same continuity, we lack the the context of like, well, okay, what has the Illuminati done? Like, y'all formed a club, you got some mobile suits, but why did that happen? Like, what was the catal- What was the catalyst for that? Because it's not just going to be, you know, you can have a mission statement. But oftentimes, you're the historical event that will really have caused that to happen. Um, the flip side of this is also just to follow up on my earlier point, is that it makes me wonder, uh, Yoshiki Tomino, I know you listen to the podcast, uh, what's the criticism of the AUG? What what did they do bad? Because I, I get that like the Titans are a bad federation, sure. Um, this, is, this also could just be me not being fresh, because like, it's been a while since I watched Zeta and Double Zeta. So also, if you're a listener and you're like, God damn it, PMC... The egg were flawed because X, Y, and You're Z. Showing the pot now. Then you know, come at me. Like, no, really, do come at me though, because I would love to understand it more. Thank you. Yeah, the Illuminati is basically just Howard in space in their in their Hawaiian shirts, <laughs> just waiting for the opportunity to strike, sailing <laughs> the seven seas and the peace million. I should be, you know, just to be honest. Like, if I were living in G Savior, I'd be I'd be happy with anyone willing to challenge the consent military. I think that's cool. I think you know. I don't want to try to strike an organization down that's actively fighting fascism. But if also this organization has a ton of power and it seems that they only use that power when it's convenient. They have a lot of mobile suits, a lot of mobile suits, as we see at the end of the film. And so that makes me question how they're using that power. Like talking about Star Trek, I think Star Trek is best when the show is cognizant of the Federation's flaws. Deep Space Nine is the best example of this. It points out the limitations and hypocrisy of the Federation. Um, but Next Gen and Voyager and other shit stuff de- uh, delves into it too. Um, but not everything. Like G-Saver in this regard kind of feels like the J.J. Abrams version of Star Trek. Back at the Hydrogen Lab, Jack holds a press conference... Jack blames the break-in on Gaian rebels and announces that effective immediately, the lab will be shut down and be converted into a consent facility. To no doubt appeal to reactionary citizens, Jack says that the rebels indirectly shut down one of the biggest waste centers of taxpayer dollars. I absolutely love this bit. Like, this is so on the nose, but it totally tracks. It reminds me a bit of the... The, the d- bit of dialogue from the end of season one of G-Witch about uh, banning physical rounds of, am- physical rounds of ammunition in space, um, which is kind of like a corollary for banning plastic straws to save the environment. Jack's taking a page 
out of the textbook, out of the playbook of conservative politicians, like framing a humanitarian organization as a waste of taxpayer dollars to distract voters from the real issues. Like this is a classic red herring. And I think the, the film is aware of this. Yeah, huge '90s energy here. It's just really, it's. It, I think it's a, that kind of comparison is is fun, where it's like, oh, we're just gonna sweep this whole thing away, and like, what are you gonna do about it? It's also funny too because he handles the press conference so poorly. You know, <laughs> like he does, he doesn't even do a good job of sweeping under the rug. Everyone can still see it; it's right there under the rug. So, how was the uh, guard killed with a consent weapon? The rebels didn't have one. Shut up! Stop! I <laughs> <laughs> can't answer that. Yeah. Just. You could make up whatever, but you chose to just embarrass yourself. Yeah. This really shows the limits of consent's power. Like, these fascists are not exercising their power, the, the power they wield to the degree they should be if they want to maintain said power, which I know is a roller coaster of a sentence there. Um, they're fucking up, <laughs> basically, is what I'm trying to say. Um, the reporters push back. Like, they ask questions about Mark, and it got me thinking about the status quo of... Uh, Congress. What's the full name of it? Congress of Settlement Nations, whatever it is. Yes, that's right. Consent. Well, consent. Yes, yes. Um, The military seems to be its own little bubble, and it seems that they are legislatively limited still, but they have aspirations to expand that power. Like, there is a degree of press freedom that exists in the colonies and on Earth that doesn't, for example, exist in Munzo in the late... 0070s like the secret police aren't black bagging civilians yet because we have press openly asking questions here and pushing back against um, their line of reasoning this aligns with a lot of the supplemental info that characterizes the consent military um, mainly that the military is made up and controlled by a bunch of reactionary hardliners like this is why philippe left presumably five years ago But for all the power and influence they wield, they don't exercise unilateral political control over the earth and the settlements. Like, that's where the president comes in, because the president kind of seems like a centrist counterweight to the growing threat of fascism within consent. It does seem like the the consent folks, the consent military, it really is, I guess, fascism with a happy face. Like, they're definitely, like you said, they could have strong-armed that uh, press conference, but they just kind of floundered it and went on. Maybe that's just, I think maybe you said, maybe that's just uh, the the movie telling us that they're incompetent losers, or maybe it's them just kind of saving, I don't know, it's not exactly to say saving face, but them to see, oh, we're not, we're not really the bad guys. We're your, we're your friendly neighborhood Reichmans, you know, we can get along still. Either way. Yeah, this uh, I'm always interested in world building, and I am curious if any of the supplemental material dives a bit into the civilian experience of what it's like to live in these settlements in zero two two three. And we'll know soon because the novel BJ at Z- over at Zionic Scans is actively translating the novel and translating the radio dramas. Um, he oh. released a preview of that online, and we. PMC, we should cover that down the line. Not immediately, but we should definitely check that out. I would be happy to do a, a one-off G Savior addendum. I think that's fair. Totally. We could also we could learn about the baseball players. I, I posted online yes. um, some of that concept art, which naively 
at, originally I thought was, oh, this is concept art for G-Savior, the film. That's why it's concluded on the G-Savior DVD as supplemental material. But it turns out it's concept art from the radio dramas. So there's a, there's a baseball player, like baseball-adjacent plot material in one of those dramas. I think there are three total. Philippe escorts Mark to a nearby theater. He explains that Gaia's experiment to end world hunger is an important cause, and this will help them succeed. Before dramatically revealing the G-Savior on the stage, Mark, awestruck, beholds the Gundam. I I absolutely uh, love this scene. So cheesy, so over the top. I mean, they literally have the Gunbuster, not the Gunbuster, excuse me, the G-Savior on stage in a theater, light shining directly on it. Um, like hit me with some G Saver thoughts, my friends. How, how, do you dig it? Do you not dig it? It's outstanding. It uh, it has, I think, great lines. I really like the shoulders. Uh, beam saber shields. I mean, beam shields are a plus. I'm hugely into them now. Maybe it's because I'm I watched F ninety one and watching Victory, but you know they're good. I like them. Beam beam shields are good. Uh, the weapon is nice. The legs are great. The uh, you know, the flaps on the back, I mean, in the flight mode are very nice as well. Very streamlined. Uh, this is a good looking suit. I used to not be entirely thrilled with the G Savior. Uh, but over time, I've definitely grown to be very fond of it as well. Uh, it's Yeah, I do agree. The, the lines are good. Uh, the, I guess really for me, the weakest point of the G Savior are its thighs. Because they don't, I don't think there's really much armor there, so it looks very like anemic, anorexic in that area. It's not really built up, but the its its shin flaps and whatnot tend to cover that up. So the illusion is at least kept up for its overall weight and mass. Uh, yeah, no, it's uh, it's kind of underplayed. It's got a lot more white on it than some of its other parade colors, so it's not uh, truly a traditional Gundam in that way. But to your point, PNC Trilogy, I'll bring this up later too, but beam shields are absolutely rad. Uh, we'll also see later that, uh, Jack's Ray. No, what does he have? It's not a Ray because the Ray are the mobile dolls, whatever Jack's mobile suit is. I'll, I'm sure it's in my note. I've written it down. It has a beam shield. It's also in the shape of a V, which to me says, yes, G savior canonically takes place after a victory Gundam, but that's another story. <laughs> No, it's, it's a tight mobile suit. Uh, I, I really appreciate how much it does using its verniers and its other jets to just kind of control its momentum. As we see in the scene where it's actually piloted through the, the, the debris in space, it's a very mobile suit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's really... hey it, can, it controls itself well, it uses its momentum well, and it, it just seems to gesticulate in a way that a machine kind of would. So, as I said before, give me a master grade of it. That's all I ask. It's good enough for that. And I only get master grades of suits that I I do genuinely like and feel I need it. Just to note, the suit that Jack pilots in the finale battle is the is the RAI, the R-A-I, as opposed to the race, which are the automated suits. There we go. I was close. I completely agree with both of my co-hosts on this one. I like the G-Savior a lot. It's a very modernist design. Um, Andy, I'm glad you pointed out just how white it is. Um, It gives it a more... I I feel like the lines are cleaner as a result, and the overall design is cleaner, but it also feels futuristic. It feels like 
a vision of the future. If you know anything about art history or architectural trends, when you're talking about modernism, modernism tends to reduce things to more minimalistic and baser elements uh, as a as a like vision, a less ornate and decadent vision of the future. And I feel like this is kind of what the G Savior is going for. Not entirely, of course. I mean, it still has those parade colors, but they're they're minimized a bit. And uh, as a result, it really speaks more to me. And it's not just completely white and devoid of color like a unicorn, right? Yeah. I would like that a lot less if that were the case, because I think the, the color definitely gives it flair and accent. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of lines during this scene where they're introducing the G-Savior. Uh, let's see. Hopefully I'm not skipping ahead on that. No, I don't think so. Um, Philippe says something along the lines of, this is much better than the old junkers we used to fly, which kind of makes me a little curious about the lineage of the G-Savior. Was it, is it an up mod of a GM? Uh, or is it uh, an up mod or an upgrade? Or is it in a lineage of other previous unnamed Gundam models? I don't think they really get into that. Hopefully they do, perhaps in the radio dramas of the novel. But it's, it would be curious to learn just where the G-Savior came from or where it was developed from. Like, what is its Hyakushiki to Zeta Gundam kind of relationship, if there is one? That's a great question. When I was watching the film, I assumed that the freedoms were the evolution of the GMs, but I could be wrong in that. Yeah, they. I think in that scene they mention a savior team, uh, but I think that's as much as we get in the movie. Uh, there, there is in the additional material some some discussion of other savior models going as early as the. The F Savior, which I think is more related to the the Freedom. I feel like we're talking about Enterprise models now. Yeah, it, it, this seems to be a bit of a deep well <laughs> of things. You know, there is uh, obviously, you know, from the video game, we know there's a G3 Savior, a, G, a G2 Savior, some other stuff like that. Uh, I'm not sure where that material is discussed, like what that comes from. I assume it must be the the novels, but it's out there. Now, this scene was filmed on location in Vancouver at the Orpheum, one of the city's oldest and most venerable theaters. PMC, I know you have some some notes on the various locations that they shot this film in, in Vancouver. Yeah, so there's a bit of Vancouver uh, in this film. shows up both in New Manhattan as well as in Gaia. Uh, right here, we're seeing the Orpheum Theater, which fans of live-action science fiction television will also recognize as the Opera House from ba- the re- Battlestar Galactica remake. Oh. And mm. uh, there's some other shots. There's a shot after the theater shot that's just like a 90s cityscape. <laughs> just like two seconds of it. And I figured out where that was. Uh, it was a shot overlooking the Vancouver Art Gallery and the Fairmont Hotel. Uh, I am happy to report that the street that is shown in that in that clip uh, now has an excellent two-way cycle track on it, and it's not just four, four lanes one way, a miserable design for a city street. So that is an improvement. And the last thing I will mention uh, is, and we'll talk about this scene later, but there is a glass house, uh, greenhouse, excuse me, on uh, Gaia that is the greenhouse at the queen elizabeth park in vancouver 
Uh, that is another. They, it, it's the the greenhouse is the same design. Obviously, the we see it in like the context of like fog, <laughs> just sort of edited <laughs> into the shot. But the greenhouse is the greenhouse. This particular one from from Vancouver. So uh, this there's all sorts of fun Vancouver things. I'm sure there was probably. I wouldn't be surprised if some of those like uh, like the Sturges Air Force Base scene is like somehow also a Vancouver thing. That one's a little probably harder to look up though. These ones were pretty easy. Well, see, now I have reasons to go to Vancouver. G Saber was filmed there. See, perfect. It's like when I went. Again. Yeah, I went to New York City and I said Federal Hall, just like in Metal Gear Solid Two. Right. Yep. <laughs> what a normal human being says. What a, what a normal <laughs> thing to say. Yes. Again, you predicted my follow-up question. So, Andy, you haven't been to Vancouver before. PMC, have you? I have not personally myself. I've been to Montreal. It's the closest I got. Yeah, I've never been to Canada. I'm I'm definitely open to visiting. If I had to visit Vancouver. Just to visit locations featuring G Savior, the greenhouse really uh, is tickling me. I like that. I, I like the idea of visiting that. Now I have been to Toronto, mm. uh, specifically the Minnesota area. I believe I went in 2015 for TFCon Canada, and that was that was quite a hoot. I need to go back. Uh, Toronto, uh, Minnesota. The area is nice, even during like June, July, so real, real summer hours. You go up there and it's like, oh, so this is what spring feels like. <laughs> spring, what a concept. I know. Uh, yeah, it's a tight place. Good con. Um, one of my dear friends, Deacon DX on Twitter, that man has been sold forever on, I think it's called Pea Meal, which is kind of like their bacon kind of thing. There's a There was a little breakfast eatery down the street from our hotel and i swear he ate there probably six times yeah as an ignorant american the first thing that comes up is hortons for me when i think of canada and i know any canadian listening to this is going to roll their eyes at that (laughs) there's a tim hortons in our area steven did you know that in philly or in jersey in jersey no i did not there's a tim (laughs) there's a tim hortons and it's right at the the end of the paco line that makes sense because the, the Krispy Kreme location is very close to the Patco line. Yeah, mm. it's right there at the end of that line. I don't know why it's there, but I, I yeah. All right, I'm making a me- I, my my short term memory is shit, but I'm making a note of that <laughs> to uh, visit we over the weekend. There's one little line from the scene also. I don't want to gloss over because it, it kind of comes back. What we were talking about earlier. It's like I know authors who use context, uh, subcontext, and they're cowards. Uh, there's a line from Philippe after the news report kind of starts airing. He leans over to the mark and says, you know, the, the, this is fast becoming an every man's battle. I'm like, aha, yes, thank you. <laughs> Someone read the script. <laughs> yeah, that's good to point out. I think it fits t- G. Savior so well tonally. There are some films and shows where a line like that would stick out, but no, that's that's G. Savior. And I'm glad the show, the writing is aware of what the movie is. Mm-hmm. PMC, we should compile a list of all real-world locations uh, featured in shows that we cover on Giant Robot FM. The last time we talked about this was the deserted Canary Island that was featured in Doan's Island. That's going to be a little harder to get to, though, Stephen, I feel like. Yeah. It's just a smidge. Just a smidge harder. Cynthia then walks into the theater, and the two of them attempt to recruit Mark. After they say the obligatory action movie lines... From what I recall, hopeless missions are your speciality. Philippe brings up news footage framing Mark for the death of that consent prison guard. 
But by the way, R.I.P. to that prison guard. Um, he did not deserve to die, and he, he's constantly his his death is being misused uh, by the wrong people, which is a shame. He watches as Simmons and Daggett are mar- marched off at gunpoint. However, Mark's not convinced. He doesn't want to start a war. He doesn't want a repeat of the past. He doesn't want bloodshed. Mark is such a Gundam protagonist. It's almost like we're watching a Gundam film. I know. Pe- people say G Savior is not Gundam, and look at it. And we have plenty more examples coming up, too, where it's like, no, you know what, guys? This is very obviously Gundam. Textbook Gundam. Later that day, Cynthia and Mark, bound to Gaia, Gaia on their transport ship, have a more intimate chat. Cynthia wants to know what happened to him. What was so bad that you had to leave the service and quit being a pilot, she asks. He replies that he had to quit or he would have faced a court-martial. I refuse to follow orders, he states. Elaborating, he tells Cynthia about a fellow soldier, Tim Sawyer. I was also about to say, I was almost about to say Tim Horton. Tim Sawyer... <laughs> who issued a distress signal during a mission. Mark wanted to attempt a midair rescue, but Jack ordered him to maintain his course and not to go. Mark's suit was too valuable. It wasn't worth the risk. Mark obeyed his orders for about 30 seconds, but it was too late. Sawyer died, and Mark has blamed himself ever since. I wish I had more to add here, but Mark articulates his trauma very clearly. This sort of tension is very common in military fiction, the, the, the prioritization of equipment over human lives. I'm reminded of Tem Ray. Speaking of classic Gundam, I'm reminded of Tem Ray over the first of first Gundam, who never misses an opportunity to value the RX-782 over his son. Remember when Amuro and him unite on side six? Like, he doesn't even ask how his son's doing. He just starts asking feverishly about the Gundam. Yeah, that scene leaves me a little curious, too, because I think, what is it, Jack? Well, Mark recalls specifically it being, he was piloting a, quote, billion-dollar piece of machinery. So I'm curious as to what it would be to be valued so heavily just monetarily and then valued over a man's life, even simply to perform what would be a routine rescue operation like we saw at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, this is this is interesting fodder for research because, or an interesting topic to research because we're not given price tags on mobile suit production often, or at least not in the Gundam material no. I've watched. The fact that that makes sense that a Gundam would cost so much, um, but I never thought to put a price tag to it. To draw a comparison, like whatever like state of the art airplane that the United States builds or sells to other countries, those carry enormously exorbitant price tags in the like the tens of millions some no sometimes billions just for a single fighter oh, yes. jet and then even just whereas they don't give you like dollar values of gundams and whatnot in gundam there's always a push for cheaper more easily produced versions of that mobile suit and so i don't know if that that could just be stemming from actual amounts of materials but it could also come from production costs so there's definitely a consideration there who built the g savior was it illuminati peeps i believe it was illuminati yeah yeah okay that's very gundam wing too um a group of (laughs) rebels clandestinely building these super suits unfortunately 
Oh, actually, I have one more note about this. Um, I wish that Mark had fully complied with Jack's order and not tried to save Tim. Like, Mark having to sit with his inaction and subservience to unjust authority, I think, is a lot more meaningful and honest. This is a small point, but I still I still believe it firmly. You can argue that the end result is the same, but him going against orders at the last second is a too clear signal to the audience that Mark's a good guy. Uh, he is a good guy. We know that for other reasons. Um, I feel it's a little too sanitized. I feel the hand of the writer here. Like, him sitting with that guilt, knowing that he did nothing, would resonate a bit more for me. No, actually, I, I actually tend to agree, now that you put it that way. That would have been... That would have carried a lot more drama with it. And then Wright could have definitely, and to your point again, the end result would have been the same. I would have left you know, a position like that either way. Just being told whether I obeyed or the fact that I was told to obey something that heinous would have kind of you know pushed me the same way should I have been in Mark's position. But yeah, I, I, I think I actually could agree that it would have been more poignant perhaps to have that guilt uh, come from a much harder place. Like I keep saying, I'm curious if we get more context about this in the novel. I'm sure yeah. it plays out the same, but still. The line that he does for that is great, too. So I sat there and obeyed his orders like a good soldier, still hearing one of our men begging for help over the radio. Like any Anybody's opinions about the scene aside, I, I honestly found it to be quite heavy either way. The score helped a lot, too, but I it's... It's a pretty powerful scene, all things considered. Andy, you read that really well. I thought you were slipping into a Roger Smith uh, P.I. monologue there. Oh, uh, <laughs> it's all off the cuff. <laughs> I think, honestly, one of my favorite parts of the scene is when he, Mark is done telling his story and Cynthia kind of leans in. It's like, it's like you, you, you couldn't have known that. And it's just that really long pause where Mark's not even looking at Cynthia and he looks up. It's like, you're right. I'll never know. Like, ooh, what a good line. It's just absolutely great. Because usually, you know, usually you end up with like, yeah, you're right. Yeah, okay, thanks for the, you know, the sympathy that you've, you know, kind of extended on me to kind of make me sit easier with this. But no, it doesn't work at all. Mark's just like, no, you're right. I will never know that 30 seconds would have changed whether that man died or not. Yeah, I think when people think back, when think about G-Savior in the present and thinking back to it, they remember the goofy lines, they remember the cringe lines, but they forget that there are some, there's some sharp writing with the dialogue, especially as it pertains to trauma. Unfortunately, Mark can't sleep it off as their transport ship hits turbulence. In an effort to avoid patrols, Dieter took a more circuitous route, which comes with some drawbacks. Mark volunteers to go out in the G-Savior to clear a path. Even though it's been some time since Mark's piloted a suit of this caliber, his preternatural instincts take over. Initially, he blasts through the, de the debris with ease until he realizes he's on a collision course with a dangerously large piece. Using the G-Savior's beam saver, he cuts through the titanium plating, creating a path for the ship. Cynthia, Dieter, and Mimi, but especially Cynthia, erupt into cheers. After a few setbacks, they make it to side eight. Gaia. Not gonna lie, the 3D CG G-Savior, I'm not being hyperbolic here. I think it looks great in motion, especially in space, which holds up much better than whenever the mechs are featured in daytime battles. 
they're just they're charming of course i've said that a lot in, in both of these podcast episodes um there's a quality about these models i can't quite put my finger on it it's ineffable but there's something that i just like so much aesthetically they they move with such a satisfying weight digital muse did a great job with the blue particle effects of the vernier boosters in particular which look good against the black backdrop of space it reminds Absolutely. me of the comforting blue glow of a warp engine yeah, I think they really nailed the flow of things in space. I mean, that's the premise of the scene is there is debris that they need to navigate. And the the way things spiral at you, I mean, this you could put this right next to any sort of asteroid belt scene from, you know, any sci-fi film of the era uh, or, you know, or maybe a little older or any one of a number of... Uh, this also reminded me of a lot of the... Uh, like the rail shooter sequences that you would see in games of this era of like space and games. There's a ton of those from the mid nineties. And I think that kind of 3d CGs, the kind of stuff you see, and this is very effective. I, I think you're uh, the, both the weightlessness of things in space as they're just floating around as well as the reactions to the actions of the G savior. I think I may have brought this up in our first episode, but like there is a time and a place and I love it. You know, 2D Gundam is great, right? We always we should always want, we should always desire 2D hand-drawn Gundam. But for the out of any shows that use 3D CG for their robots, I feel like Gundam almost always gets it right. You know, um MS Igloo, I love how the mobile suits work in that and move in that as well. I think they look terrific in the origin. Uh, and it's, it's right. It's right there with it. I think the, the G savior looks terrific in G savior. I think Steven, you were saying that there is a, a certain weight. There's a certain momentum that they are surprisingly able to capture with these models. You know, there's a, not everything is turning at once. Like they don't animate it like a person. They animate it like a machine. That has to, and mind you, it's minute, but it has to, there is a, uh, there's an acceleration that has to go into their servos. It's not immediate, right? And that might be too much engineering talk coming out, but it's, uh, but it is, it does, it looks good. It moves good. I brought this up earlier, but I like how it just, it uses its feet verniers and all the rest of its verniers to just control its forward momentum, its side momentum. There's consideration taken for making this feel like a machine and not simply a mythical science fiction suit of robot armor and that that attention to detail is is fantastic actually stepping back for just a moment i also love like as a general idea i love like startup procedure sequences and we get one hell with yeah the g savior we get we get a hanger shot i love hanger shots we get a startup procedure Flipping switches, touching buttons, mumbling to yourself as you make sure everything is turned on just right. Terrific. Absolutely terrific. The score is great during this scene. Of course, we will all bring it up again. The the victory slash F91 slash crossbone beam shield. Always a great look. I know, just all the moving parts, not just of the G Savior, but the moving parts of everything that it interacts with. And I think penultimately, I guess actually ultimately, because it is the end of the scene, uh, Mark just cuts 
that side of a side in half and pushes it away so their ship can go through to safety. Overall, just what a thrilling scene. No hyperbole from me either. It is a truly, it is a thrilling scene to watch. PMC's comment got me thinking, what are some contemporary science fiction films, contemporary to G-Savior, that featured asteroid field or debris field scenes? And the only thing that came to mind was the episode two Django Fett Obi-Wan fight, which I feel like, I guess technically it looks better than this, but I think G-Savior is of an a comparable quality to that scene. I've, the special effects aren't as sharp, and of course the sound quality is nowhere near as strong as it is in episode two. Um, but it, it holds its own. Like I, I'm not going to say that the G-Savior scene is as good as the asteroid scene from Empire. No fucking way. Not even close. But um, I'm sure it holds its own against CG contemporaries from the early 2000s. Maybe the Lost in Space film? Oh. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I saw that once in theaters with my family mm-hmm. back in the, oh. was, was that a 90s movie or early 2000s movie? Oh, I want to say that was late cuz there was a period in the late 90s or mid, mid to late 90s is when they were taking all the old TV shows and making movies out of them. I want to say that was 98, but yeah. double check me on that. Let's see, um, 19. Yeah, uh, yes. 1998 film. Yep, you got it. There we Sh- go. Swimmers in that, right? The friends guy? Yeah. He plays uh Major Don West. Okay. Matt LeBlanc. Well, yes. All right. I did see that movie, but that's a real blank spot in my brain. I remember very little <laughs> of it. <laughs> that might be for the best. My, <laughs> as a short aside, because we're already on an aside, uh, my brother actually just got done watching all of the original Lost in Space. And he's like, you know what? Okay, I'll watch the movie too. And he's like, after he got done, he's like, you know what? I don't think I actually like the original series quite so much. But I respect it more than the movie. Uh, <laughs> there was that Netflix show recently too, right? That ran two seasons, I believe. I That's believe right. so. Yeah, uh, where the robot just looks like a a gif. Yeah, Mass Effect it really does. It's just a gif with a glowy face, like the uh, there's a old line of toys. I don't, uh, I forget what it's called, but you had just characters with the entire top of their body was just carved out, and they had a holographic sticker. And that was the character. It's like, ooh, it's glowy. It's, I'm kind of. I think it's visionaries. I think that may have been the toy line. I'm not sure, but that's kind of. It's just a geth with that type of face. And it's like this is awful, to be completely honest. And they they got Billy Moomy back from the original. He was a Will Robinson. They got him to be Doctor Smith, but then they just only had him in the first episode because the Doctor Smith in the show was Doctor Smith's daughter. It's like. <laughs> Mm. All right, whatever. Okay. <laughs> Lost in Space was a 60s show, right? My mom, I believe, watched yes. it as a kid. That makes sense. I, I want to say it was 63, 64. It, it started before Star Trek, I want to say, but it yeah. coincided. Or else I had, might have that backwards. 63 is definitely before Star Trek. I think Star Trek is yes. 66, 67. It was 66, yes. Yeah, oh, okay, mom, so it looks like I'm, Lost in Space was 65, so one year prior. Okay. Yeah, my mom always talks about watching that, Twilight Zone, and Star Trek. Oh, yeah, yeah. When they touch down in Gaia, Cynthia wastes no time, requesting that Kobe deliver the sample to the lab without delay. Mimi, however, has different priorities. She wants to shower, shave her legs, and slip into something a little bit more... Gaian? Okay. The 90-ness of the line aside... Mimi's desire to dress Gaians signifies a culture all its own, which is worth mentioning, and I'm super fascinated about this aspect of the film in particular. 
As Mark Simmons writes, the Gaian settlement, or Gaia, is the leading settlement of Side 8 dedicated to ecological principles. End quote. And I, one cool thing about this film is how the Gaian architecture reflects these environmental values. I mean, it's basic stuff, but it's still cool to see. Like, full of earthy brown and green tones, uh, what few interior shots we get showcase how the Gaians incorporate greenery into their daily lives. The environmentalist in me wants to know more. Like, is the Gaian commitment to ecology aesthetic? Do they just like how it looks? Or do these colonists want to reduce consumption and coexist more symbiotically with nature? Like, based on their innovations in the field of agriculture and just how committed they are to seeing these innovations come into existence, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt here. I will say, Side 8 is pretty new. (laughs) It is certainly, I don't think there's any mention of Side 8 pre-G Savior. So it is. Colony. Yeah, it's pretty much just like brand new. There's a part of me that almost wonders if it's like uh I don't know, if they if they like started greenwashing making colonies like all right, well finally folks, we have the environmentally friendly the the electric vehicle of space colonies. Yeah, clean coal everyone. Yeah, Side clean eight. coal. <laughs> Here you go. Go go to we're calling it Gaia. <laughs> See, that would be if Tomino wrote this. Mm. But that's that's still that's super fun. I would like to exist in that split space. Like, well, there, uh, th- there's a there's a little bit of Tominoism here because what Gaia just means Earth, right? So you know, yeah, there's a little bit. This is something that interests me: uh, ecological urban planning. I live in suburban New Jersey, one of the most densely populated locations in the United States, which essentially means I live in one giant fucking parking lot. And for the record. Uh, this applies more to PM. Uh, this applies more to me than it does to PMC. I vibe with urban decay. <laughs> uh, I I dig uh, existing in empty mall parking lots from time to time, but it's not a world I want my kids to live in or inherit. And there's an entire field of study dedicated to exploring how to rebuild or plan cities in ways that are more symbiotic with nature. I should say, be wary though. Sometimes you read corporate PR online about greenifying urban centers that's just complete nonsense like uh, neom the proposed super city in saudi arabia Um, but i was stoked to see this represented in g savior even if we only get a glimpse into guy in society like i love in sci-fi and this is low-hanging fruit as far far as sci-fi is concerned but i love it anytime i see it i love whenever architecture represents ideological values like how in the first season of DS9, the Federation crew is so put off by the severe Cardassian designs. Uh, I just I love O'Brien complaining about it. Andor is really good with this as well. I mean, almost any science fiction show or movie worth its weight in salt does this. But again, it's still cool to see. Yeah, I think it's really fun that the I think Gaia is presented as a as a place where people live and it reflects their views accordingly. Regardless of how sincere or insincere, how commercialized or not commercialized, I think the architecture reflects something. Yeah, it's one-dimensional. I mean, really, it's just like, all mm-hmm. right, they're they're environmentalists. Well, let's put let's surround them with trees. Let's, uh, let's just hang some ferns. Yeah, <laughs> like in the beginning of the pandemic when we all got like uh, house plants. Speaking of that, Andy, I remember distinctly you posting about your cactus. Cacti. Cacti. Excuse yes, me. Yes, I've got quite a few. Uh, they are. I have to water them next week on the 29th, every 14 days or so. 
Now, I've got quite a few. Uh, all of them I've bought, a couple I've inherited, but one I actually did grow from an actual seed, and it's doing quite well. It's about the size of... Uh, it's a little bit smaller than a golf ball, but it, I, I've, I believe it's a fishhook cactus. Uh, either way, it's extraordinarily angry. <laughs> but they all seem to be doing quite well. I, I'll keep my wipe updated. I'll be like, yo, my friend Andy, yeah, my buddy... He's look at him. He's growing a cactus. He's growing yeah. cacti. Yeah, so I guess I think I have. Let's see. Uh, just cacti. Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Nine cactuses, and maybe three or four, five succulents. Do you have names I, I for just, them? Uh, no, I haven't named any of them. I, the, only really one of them has an identity, and it's the angry one. Because when, when it was starting out, it was just really, really small, like the size of a marble, but it had uh, pins and spikes just coming out everywhere, longer than its body. And I showed my mom that. It's like, oh, that one's angry. I'm like, okay, that's, that's it. And that's just what you'll be from now on. <laughs> Yeah, I asked that question thinking of the David Lynch anecdote with him picking up those Woody Woodpecker dolls and naming them and keeping them in his apartment. Yes. <laughs> just imagining Andy with a 11 cacti and just each one with a name. Yeah, no, I only name my cars. Now, I want to be clear. I am... Maybe anti-Illuminati is too strong because I dig the fight against fascism, but I'm, I'm skeptical of Illuminati, but I'm pro-Gaian. Uh, for reasons that ex like for ideological reasons that exist within the text, but also how it's used in the story itself from a writer perspective, writerly perspective. G Saver, like any other late UC show or movie, has to grapple with the post Shars counterattack dilemma of where to take the story in a world that refused to change. You can't just keep repeating the same cycles of oppression. There's a finite amount of story to tell there. G Saver's answer is to establish a group of people working in good faith, but who by no means are utopian. They're, they're trying to advance an alternative way of life, one that isn't predicated on the destruction of nature. I think that's rad. And if G-Savior continued, there's a lot of contradictions in classic Tomino style that you could explore here, like the irony of creating a natural landscape in space and what that means. I, I was writing this in my notes, and I was like, my immediate thought was, just put Jurassic Park in space. Make a dino space colony. That's It's a perfect crossover. It's almost too good, though. Like There's also the question of, you have that late UC dilemma. There's also the Jurassic Park dilemma. Where do you take Jurassic Park after the first film? Dinos in space. It's a Dino Crisis 3. Oh, fuck, Steven. I was about to say that. Yeah, I know. I saw your <laughs> eyes glimmer. God damn but it. I, I, I believe that only takes place on a spaceship. Yes, that's. I think that's right. I mean, that's not okay. actually a colony, but it would be cool, like uh, recreate Isla Nublar on a space colony. It would. It would fit. You see, like all those space billionaires building their kitschy, consumeristic dreams. Make it happen. Oh, it would. It would do pretty well at the box office. You'd have the three Gundam weebs and just all the the kids who love dinos. Those are the money makers. Yeah, fuck off the Mario movie. <laughs> which for the record i haven't seen i'm a big mario fan oh i i actually i remember because it's on my shelf right now i actually have the the original mario brothers movie on dvd that movie rules 
all the think pieces were right, I think. That movie, I'm glad it's being reexamined. I'm hoping G-Saver gets a similar reexamination in the future. Yeah, I mean, if if the Gundam live-action film happens, then I think G-Saver think pieces are inevitable. Oh, yes. Then good. Uh, yeah, even if the legendary movie that's coming out is bad, let it come out so that we can re-examine G-Saver. Absolutely, yes. yeah. Yeah, Netflix, put in theaters. I want to see Gundam... My butt, I want my butt in the seat. Like, if, if Cuckoo's Dones Island, if fucking Cuckoo's Dones Island can get a theatrical release. <laughs> yeah. And you dub it for just, and just show that dub once and never release it. Please, oh release the live action film. I need that dub. Release that dub. Yeah. I mean, if you have, if like someone has access to it and wants to do some shady business, please put it on the Internet Archive or something. Contact the Illuminati. Exactly. Yes. Do the, that's the work. I, I'd be pro Illuminati then. Mm hmm. <laughs> You know, there was, uh, I thought they were going to actually release it, but there is someone out there who has, I think, a print of the Mario Brothers movie, and they have a 4K restoration of it, Hmm. but I could have sworn they were going to release it to the internet, but apparently they only showed it at roadshows. Interesting. But it is out there, and there is a devoted, I was going to say cult a devoted subculture of people who definitely appreciate that movie and do as much as they can for it on an unrelated mario note cynthia (laughs) asked mark to accompany her to a meeting with counselor graves as politics isn't her forte per mark simmons graves is the chairman of gaia's governing council and thus the de facto leader of side eight Graves has a pacifist bent and prefers peaceful negotiations to resolving disputes. End quote. But he doesn't welcome Cynthia back with open arms. The Earth government has relayed a demand that Gaia return you and the other members of your party to their custody, Graves declares. There is a destroyer hovering just outside our airspace waiting for us to comply. Your presence here has cast Gaia in an aggressive light, Mr. Curran. Real quick sidebar, when I was taking my notes, I was like, what do I call the space around a colony? Is it airspace? The film uses the term airspace, but is there like a a, a technical term for space space? Not it's yet, Stephen. Right? <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to think if something like that has been formalized. Generally speaking, I feel like space stuff tends to adopt naval terms. Yeah. Which is was the best decision in the world. I yes. love naval terminology. Don't get me started. Space is now battlefields. Um, Don't get me excited, Pam. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but here it's a little more difficult because it is more three dimensional. So I, I hence I get the 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 desire to say airspace uh, to represent sort of everything above and and out out you know projecting outward from the surface of the colony. But there's no air, right? Like that's why it's not good because there's no actual air. So what's what's up with that? I mean, I you know, absent some military terminology that someone could could suggest that would be borrowed from naval terminology, you would just have, probably have to pick some other you know descriptor, you know, proximate territory, proximate area, volume. <laughs> I don't know. Proxy space. Proxy space. Yeah, I mean, if, I feel like if Tomino were naming it, he would just say. Space, space, like Moon, Moon from Double Zeta. Ah, uh-huh. radial territory. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do 
Graves pulls back after his less-than-inviting opening, acknowledging that even if he did hand over Mark and Cynthia, consent wouldn't be appeased. Mark agrees. Consent only wants the sample. Graves does, a bit naively, want to know why congressional forces would want to start a war on the precipice of such a mutually beneficial discovery. Graves considers handing it over to them on the grounds that it would avoid conflict. Cynthia emphatically shoots that idea down. It won't stop here. They're already in control of the weaker agricultural settlements, and believe me, Gaia is next. She urges him to take swift and immediate action. All right, so this is one of my big bugbears with AU Gundam, the inability to write political institutions with nuance. I'm subtweeting Wing and Seed, so Double O and IBO fans, put your pitchforks down. Uh, I find that factions tend to come in two flavors, mustache-twirling fascist and nonviolent peaceniks. Um, Star Wars The Clone Wars uh, also has this problem. Whenever I think of peaceniks, naive peaceniks, I think of a whole bunch of episodes in that show. Like, there's no nuance or shades of gray, which limits storytelling potential by putting very predictable guardrails on a narrative. So I'm glad that the Gaians aren't pigeonholed into either mold. They're not a monolith. Cynthia pushes back against her father's initial unwillingness to resist, and he, he buys into it pretty quickly. There's internal debate. The Gaians have soldiers. They can defend themselves. They aren't reduced to caricatures, uh, which I'm really glad to see. The fact that they're so responsive to what happens, and this is true here in this, this discussion scene. It's also true in the scene where they're reacting to you know the approach of the various military forces. They are, yeah, they're just reading the scene and like, what are our options? You know, like what makes sense? What are they doing? Uh, it it's it, it feels pretty relatable, realistic in that sense that they aren't just uh, towing some line. Come you know, come hell or high water. And right, I ha- actually have in my notes uh, a good line from Chancellor Graves. Diplomacy isn't in action, Cynthia. And I have a sub-bullet under that saying, okay, Relina. But, but to, to your point, it is more dynamic than that. Because, you know, when you have Relina talking with uh, Dorothy Catalonia, it's, it really is black and white. I mean, to be fair, Relina does kind of be like later on, it's like, is what I'm doing right? Is this worth it? Is total pacifism actually an achievable identity? And thankfully, I'm glad that at the end of the show, Wing says, no, it's not. More or less. But I think my ultimate point to this scene, I think it jives with what you guys are saying, is that, and people say G-Savior's not Gundam. <laughs> when you've got a lot going on with what we're seeing here. Yeah, I thought I I wrote that down in my notes too. The Graves line I was like, "Hot damn, that's a pretty good line." Not only in isolation, but how it works in the film. Who plays Graves? We talked about him with Mark Simmons. He does a great job. Blue Man Kuma. Yeah, he's still alive, right? I believe so. Yeah. Who Garneau passed away? No, any other actors passed away? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Yeah, no, because we uh, we talked about a few of them and how. Uh, some of them interacted with the uh, Twitter account. Uh, yeah, I, we, I, yeah, we had it was it Anuka Akuma who plays Cynthia Graves interacted with the account, and then the other funny retweet that we got was like only very tangentially related because it was the the Tom Cochran account who is only is that's like a deep tangent because we only tweeted about it because that is uh, Brandon Elliott's first credited role on IMDb is being in the music video for Tom Cochran's hit single. Life is a highway. 
I'm a little surprised because Brennan Elliott is pretty active on Twitter. I'm surprised he didn't interact with the account because we only had nice things to say. And he has acknowledged G-Saver online. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Brendan Alley, if you had a spare forty-five minutes, we'd love to talk to you. I'll watch <laughs> up to five. I'll, I'll watch up to five rom-coms that you star in. I'll commit to that number. <laughs> that break-in movie I want to watch. PMC, remember we were talking about that. We're, Andy, were we talking about that with you? Or is that another? Yeah, pod? the Dreamhouse movie. The yeah. yeah, yeah. No, that looks good. That's on my list. I was thinking about that the other day. Speaking of this debate, like reading this through a historical lens, you can certainly draw parallels between this and the West's inaction uh, vis-a-vis German expansion in the years leading up to World War II. Like in this, if you if you can if you look at it through this lens, Graves is our Neville Cham- Chamberlain, uh, Prime Minister of England, who is unwilling to challenge Hitler in his bid for the Sudetenland. There's also a bunch of other examples of German expansion, like into the Rhineland too. Like, like Likewise, Graves doesn't want to ruffle any feathers. He doesn't want to incur the ire of consent, which also, to be fair, I do understand. Um, to put this in Star Wars terms, I'm be talking a lot about Star Wars. Uh, this would be a very Lando move, like uh, handing over Han, his old friend, to the Empire in order to preserve what peace he's established out of Imperial control on his uh, little station. I had no choice. I got here before you did. <laughs> Don't get me talk. I could talk about Empire all day and all night. That and Master and Commander, two Desert Island movies of mine. <laughs> right next to G Savior, of course. Oh, of course, on every as it should be on everybody's list. Graves passionately argues that diplomacy isn't in action. It's at this point that it's revealed that Graves is Cynthia's father. He then proceeds to upbraid his daughter for going completely against his command with her, as he puts it, half baked infiltration plan. Their meeting ends inconclusively. After the heated Graves reunion, Mark and Cynthia take a stroll through the family greenhouse. Cynthia vents a bit about her father, after which Mark, with the subtlety of a brick, begins to lay on some of that cure and charm. I can only imagine that your dad must give your boyfriends the third degree. And with that, my friends, we are off to the races. Minutes later, after Cynthia offers an awkward handshake and thanks for his help, the two lock lips and passionately embrace, spying from a distance, concealed, not too, not too concealed though, but concealed behind some flora and fauna, Mimi watches her fiancé's infidelity play, play out in front of her. That's my second note that I want to, I guess, um, apologize for. I ref, ref, referred to Mimi as Mark's girlfriend, but she's his fiancé, which I think is only mentioned once or twice in the film. Hmm. The film does not make a big deal about their upcoming wedding if it's even planned. No, they have no firm date. Absolutely, no way. <laughs> Which may, it makes sense. It, it, they could be. They could be have been engaged for a while at this point. Remember, because mm-hmm. the thing that he's putting off is moving in with her. So, like, that's yeah. clearly whatever the whatever the progress for the relationship is. That's the next thing. They have not talked about a wedding. Look, I know you can criticize this twist as unearned and unrealistic. Even Cynthia admits, like, I don't know why I did that. But Mark's a charming guy. His charisma and personality rubbed off on me, Stephen Hero, the critic here. So, like, why not in Cynthia? Like, sure, I would like to see these two share a bit more screen time. I wish there was some more build-up to this moment, but this didn't bother me at all. As cliche as it sounds, sometimes love does bloom on a battlefield or in a greenhouse in Vancouver. I mean, it's a rom-com. Look, there's a reason why, why <laughs> Brendan Elliott made a career out of this, because... Uh, you know, he's, he's funny and charming and that's, you know, and he, and he can do it. 
And so it's very, it is, it is what it is. Also, it, I would have loved to see uh, Katarina Conti have a career of being like miserable and Bush's way in the back because she's also really good at that. She is pretty funny. I guess she didn't want to continue being an, being an actor, but like throughout this whole Gaia sequence, she is very funny. <laughs> we should really watch the the uh, serial killer film yeah, with her Hobbs and Brian yeah. yeah, maybe like one day as a stretch goal, do like a commentary <laughs> for that movie. <laughs> I think my note for this scene is in all caps. Uh, oh no, secret smoochie. So, <laughs> <laughs> what what have we kissed in the 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 greenhouse at the Queen Elizabeth Park in Vancouver? Ha ha, JK. Unless. <laughs> my meme making mind is working the gears are turning PMC. <laughs> and speaking of the greenhouse it's a very appropriate setting for their first kiss it's very edenic hmm. macross plus uh when isamu and myung share that moment in the woods incorporates similar imagery and of course you could expand this metaphor to include the sin of their infidelity mirroring eve's transgression in the garden like it's very simple stuff but it totally works Simple is more than nothing, right? And so even if it is a simple attempt at imagery or allegory, at least you had some amount of effort to put it in there. And honestly, sometimes simple works better than convoluted nonsense. Like I like my... I like my Metal Gear Solids, but as we'll talk about in this week's episode, or as we'll talk about when we discuss this week's episode of G-Witch, sometimes well-telegraphed plot twists work better than not. And there's a little something called... Dramatic irony. Meanwhile, General Garneau, without presidential approval, and hell, maybe not congressional approval either, Garneau orders Jack to ready the rays for a black ops strike on Gaia. Not long after, Gaia's... Is it K-Assad or K-Sat or K-Sat? I can't remember how they pronounce it in the film. I want to say they they put an extra syllable in there, K-Sat, but... I mean, look, you can do whatever you want. No one's going to... They're not going <laughs> to... Consent will come for you. <laughs> Gaia's KSAC guns, their kinetic anti-satellite weapon system, built for hit-to-kill debris mitigation, picks up the Ulysses, an approaching consent destroyer. Mark tells Graves what he already knows. His technicians need to override the system to make sure the guns don't fire on the Ulysses. Unfortunately, due to Mimi's interference, the KSATs unleash, brought, unleash a broadside that damages the ship's exhaust port. Like, make no bones about it, consent are a bunch of no-good, goose-stepping fascists. I, I got a game-recognized game here. I got to compliment them on this. This is a brilliant, brilliant military maneuver. And it could even work without Mimi's help. Like, once they breach Guy in airspace, they run the risk of those guns firing on them if the computer mistakes their ship for debris, which is a possible outcome. And that would be an act of provocation. And all the justification consent needs to go in their guns blazing. Like, it provides them with political cover and frames the Gaians as the aggressors. Yeah, it's definitely a very simple and effective ploy for, you know, kind of shaping the narrative, turning the script around. And, uh, but it does, it does make you ask, how, how, like, how can Mimi do this? How does she know how to do this? Why can she do it from the room? Why, why, what, what, where's the infosec? This isn't important, but I'm still thinking it anyway. So, PMC, you're in the camp that Mimi knew this whole time, and she's been a, quote-unquote, a double agent working against Mark since the beginning? I think she has been opportunistic. I think her primary focus is advancing her own career. 
Mm-hmm. In the established military, I think she, you know, she would be best friends with uh, um, Suzaku Kurugi. She, they would get along famously. And so I'm not saying that she showed up already having the planes on how to sabotage the KSAT guns. I think that's a bit much. I don't think there was like a specific plot, but I do think, you know, she, she must have had the technical literacy to do this and saw that it would be helpful in much the same way that she allows the, the ship carrying Garneau to dock with Gaia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the one wrinkle to my read. It's not as clean, but then again, like, we'll talk about this later. The film makes a lot of bones about Mimi catching Mark in the act of infidelity. Uh, I feel like that's when everything turns for her. Um, if she were working against Mark this whole time, that doesn't track as neatly as I would like it to. The one Pam's- thing I want to, Go on, Andy. Oh, the one thing I want to bring up about this scene is, you know, just this is a good move for a movie of any budget, honestly. But just considering the budget of this movie, uh, when Garneau and Jack are talking to one another, just having them shot behind or shot from behind frosted glass, mm. like that's a really good look. And then when they're going back and forth and one is talking to the other, having the camera just see them through, I guess which you would call like the frame between the frosted glass where you can only see their face, like the very middle of their faces. Honestly, great work. Like that's great scene composition for what most people would look at just being a cheapo 90s Sunday afternoon type of movie. Yeah, PMC and I are convinced that Graham Campbell, the director of this film, wrote his own Wikipedia page. If that's the case, and Campbell, <laughs> if you're listening, which I guess there's a possibility because if I were a retired director... Um, I would occasionally Google myself, and this might come up if he does. Mm. Include this bit about G-Savior. You could even quote Andy, uh, the big O expert of the big O archive on Wikipedia, (laughs) um, because it's a good thing to point out. There are some decent shots in this film. PMC also, uh, another G-Witch, possible G-Witch connection. The Dominicus battleship from the prologue, that was also named the Ulysses, right? Something was named Ulysses in... G saver because I made a meme about it because I did the wait uh, something the named G in wait did you say Dominicus you mean G witch prologue yeah yeah well a, a Dominicus ship called the Ulysses oh you might be right because I made a James Joyce meme about it the reason why I'm saying that is maybe because G witch loves to do those UC nods I'm saying this very sarcastically <laughs> maybe that was a nod to G savior yeah you're also, right you're right there's also uh, Ulysses thirty one of course. The classic. Mm. You know, I got to write that down. I've been meaning to feature something from that on Mecha Day. Oh. Uh, let's see. Uh, going, uh, speaking about this scene a little bit further, uh, just maybe deciding to sabotage Gaia's peace efforts by launching missiles at a consent cruiser by being scorned as a lover is definitely another textbook Gundam move. Again, oh, hell yeah. people say G Savior isn't Gundam. Here it is. Yeah, I'll talk about this later, but this is like, this reads a lot like an early Tomino character, like a Tomino character from the 70s or 80s. You're, um, oh, I just forgot her name, but she, unfortunately she's so forgettable, though she has, <laughs> certainly has her fans. Garma, PMC, it's in oh, my notes. Oh, Isolina? Isolina, yes. But even uh, Haman, too, from First Gundam, though she has a bit more uh, like meat on her bones, narratively speaking. Also, talking about set design... The guy in command center looks just like the Rebels command center on Yavin 4 in A New Hope. Um, 
I feel like for some of these later scenes, they were like watching New Hope and uh, the watching New Hope in the background just to either draw <laughs> inspiration or just come up with some of these aesthetics. On cue, the guy and officer of the watch detects two signals, armor and mobile suit carriers that just departed from Sturgis Air Base. They'll arrive at Gaia in less than four hours. Graves orders the women and children to be evacuated, a decision that Mark protests, arguing that he needs to consider surrendering. Cynthia suggests to Mark that he lead their squadron. Believing any defense of the settlement to be a suicide mission, he doesn't jump at the opportunity. You know, upon rewatching G-Savior, I'm surprised how little time we actually spend on Gaia before all hell breaks loose. I think the <laughs> film would be, because uh, the film's only, the film technically is less than 90 minutes if you don't ca- count the credits. And I, I feel like it would be better served with an extended stay here, a respite, if you will, after the frantic, frantic escape and debris field sequences. Like, getting to know the Gaians and what they stand for would go a long way to create some viewer buy-in. Like, we should want to defend this place just as much as Mark and Cynthia do. And I'm not sure the film entirely pulls that off. And plus, it would be an opportunity for more character beats, which is something that's a bit lacking in G-Savior. I feel like this is kind of why we end up with the ending that we have, which is to say that Mark wants to return to Earth because we never really make ourselves at home in Gaia, even though it's probably the most desirable place to live in. (laughs) It might, you know, when you consider all of UC Gundam, space colonies are bad, folks. I'm not disagreeing with that statement. But I think it's slim pickings like where I personally, where I, Stephen Hero, would want to live. I'd probably want to live on Gaia, to be honest. Nice food. Um, I'm a nature guy myself. Um, even though I'm confined to a single space colony, still, it has its perks. And war, Earth is so war-torn. I think I'd, I'd do best here. I, I thrive here, relatively speaking. Mark returns to his residence, where he's greeted by Mimi, who tells him that all he needs to do is apologize and everything can go back to normal, revealing that she knows about the kiss. Looking over her shoulder when Mimi awkwardly hugs him, Mark sees the Chaosot interface on her computer screen. He then puts everything together. How can you sell out an entire society for your own personal desires? The two have it out. Mark locks her in the room and leaves in a huff. All so, right, so. She left it on the screen intentionally, right? Because Ooh, she wants a good question. She wants Mark to like she wants Mark to see it. Honestly, I hadn't considered that up until that moment, but I like that read. I mean, the way she says it, it's like uh, like I was going to let you throw your life away. I love you. We I'm going to save both of us. So maybe so. Yeah. It could be a power plan her part too, a bit of a threat. And she is dominating the relationship, or at least that's mm-hmm. my read. All right, so and I talked a bit about this before, and Andy alluded to this a few minutes ago. Uh, I think Mimi loves Mark, I think, and once scorned, becomes blinded by that love. Um, I This is where I stand opposite PMC. I don't think she was using Mark for personal gain. At, at the start of the film, I feel like he's too down on his luck and removed from power to be useful for Mimi because he hadn't talked to Garneau for a long time at that point. I feel like Mimi would know just how useful and how valuable Mark could be. Furthermore, I don't think she was a double agent this entire time, because otherwise the scene in the greenhouse doesn't work. Like, her surprise there reads as genuine, though PMC does bring up really good points about the guns and her technical prowess with the guns. I guess to offer up uh, another read, perhaps, but this is when it becomes more convoluted, perhaps Garneau kind of talked her through it, but, you know, you have to take that with a grain of salt, too, because that, that kind of presses against plausibility. Hmm. 
this makes Mimi, and I'm not, well, we'll talk about how I feel about Mimi later, but I feel like Mimi at her core is an unfortunately one-dimensional character defined by the man in her life. And in some ways, considering the legacy of Gundam, that's very appropriate. Andy was talking about this earlier. Like, she comes across like an Isolina seeking revenge for her lost lover. To make a literary comparison, she's Dido to Mark's Aeneas. Like, since she can't have him, she curses Mark and the Gaians. See, this is why I, I like my read, is because it ascribes, I think, you know, there's a little a little more agency to what she's doing and she's doing it for herself, but also at times is spurred along by her personal interactions with Mark. I mean, she doesn't necessarily have to be a a cold calculating spy the entire time. I think she is certainly put into motion by Mark's infidelity in order to kind of bring him back into the fold to resume the plan as it were by saying like, Hey, look, they're done. Like they're, they're, you know, this plan is in motion and it's not going to stop. So you got to come with me. We can still fix this. You can still rejoin my, my plan, my narrative. Um, so no, I don't know. I I think, you know, and I also think too, that that works more with, with her ultimate fate as well, which is to say, you know, she kind of loses faith in her worldview and then just, you know, shuffles off this mortal coil. The only thing I'll re- the only reason why I resist that a little is because the fact that she g- gives state secrets to Mark, a at the time a known fugitive, suggests that number one she loves Mark, but number two she can't be too concerned about her career. Like if you are comfortably ensconced within a quasi fascist mm. military structure and you go, well, you know what? There's that known fugitive. I'm going to give him state secrets. You're just you're casting your shot. You're you're condemning yourself to a certain fate. I mean, we don't know that consent is even half as fascist as today's United States government. Spicy takes you on that, <laughs> <Giant> Robot <laughs> FM. Uh, also, speaking of the United States government, Sturgis Air Base sounds so fucking American, but I don't believe it's actually an air base. I think that's right. I don't. I don't think it's actually oh. air base. I feel like it's the UC equivalent of Dulles. Like Dulles has a, like a very like heavily American connotation for obvious reasons. Sturgis does too. Just like Grassley in Jigwitch. Like very just American sounding. Like Maxter. No. Oh. I'm still not even sure what Gundam Maxter means, but maybe it's just the maximum Gundam. Oh yeah, that's Chibity's <laughs> other Gundam, right? The one that's in the manga with that weird ass design. No, it's uh that's his uh, mobile suit and 13th fight, which is during the proceedings of the actual show, Gundam there's, Maxter. There's one, okay, and they give another one, though, with the weird hat. He has, there's one that I only think that's appears like in the Gundam manga. Gundam Maxter Plus. Okay. Or some, maybe it's, it has a different name, but yeah, it has a giant, like, foam-looking cowboy hat on. Yeah. It has revolver cylinders, I believe, as shoulders. It's absolutely ridiculous, but I love it. It's, 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 I guess... Going way far back, that's the energy you get from G Gundam, and that's why it's so good. I like that design a lot. And it's the, good. the satirical energy that Chibity brings to it is a whole lot of fun. Mm hmm. 100%. Chibity's the best pilot. Um, <clears throat> might get some flack for that, but I think everyone typically agrees that Chibity is fantastic. Uh, it is curious. I don't know if I have quite as much insight on, like, is Mimi a spy? Is it does Mimi love, um, mark actually or not but i did just kind of notice how the beginning of the film kind of mirrors the end of the film between them 
Because at the first, the film was like, you need to get dressed. You need to come to this party with me or you're going to ruin my career. And then, she, you know, she, throughout, I guess the rest of it, she kind of makes up for it, gets him some wine, helps him kind of. It's like, don't argue with Jack. Go meet the president. Do your right thing. And then later in the film, it's also, what are you doing with these guy-ins? You're still going to ruin my career again. Uh, I know, I'm not sure how much that mirrors with what else happens throughout. But nevertheless, I noticed that a little bit of that parallel going on, which is which is good. Yeah, there's a lot of whiplash occurring with Mimi's characterization. It feels very Tomino-esque. Uh, I'm not even saying that critically here. I'm just saying her character goes through some shit and takes some turns that I have trouble tracking. <laughs> but I do like how, at least in that scene, how stirred up and self-justified she is during a lot of that. Like, it's definitely someone who at least believes that she knows what she's doing is right. Mm-hmm. And I got that from her characterization in that scene. I thought that was effective. Yeah, agreed. I got to read the novel now. We got we to gotta find this out <laughs> conclusively, PMC. Because I, I, want, I want to buy into your read. I just feel like the scene where she was alone in her room, I feel like, like three minutes was cut off there where she was going to open up the computer and start doing some spy shit. Yeah, I do wonder about that as well. I mean, I, I think she was... I, I, I always interpreted the that opening bit as her maneuvering herself into having some more independence so that she could go do the computer stuff. It did feel like she was going to do it right then and there when she was picking out her outfit, but uh, ended up ended up being after seeing the infidelity. Which, yeah, which, but naively, maybe my read is that she contacts Garneau after the kiss. Mm-hmm. That's the catalyst. But we'll never know, or maybe we will. In which case, we'll we'll reconvene to discuss at length about Mimi's decision. <laughs> Mark, with a bit of Han Solo swagger, arrives in the hangar and begins to suit up. Like Leia in front of the Alliance pilots on Hoth and Empire, Mark addresses the guy in pilots. I'm going to divide you into four teams according to profession. Engineering will be called Sign Echo. Engineering will be call Sign Echo. Transportation Tango. Farming. Foxtrot, and Services, Sierra. Each group is to nominate 10 pilots per call sign and a leader. May the force be with you, or be good, Mark says, before dismissing them. All right, this is a really reductive uh, observation, but I gotta say it anyway. The Star Wars vibes in this movie are off the fucking charts. Like, I know comparing Gundam to Star Wars is old hat and reductive, but still... It's hard to miss. Like, even without a masked villain, G-Saver might be the most Star Wars-y Gundam thing, which is saying something. To be completely fair, as someone who grew up as a significant Star Wars person, mm-hmm. I didn't really catch any of this through my couple of watch-throughs through G-Saver, oh. but I'm, I'm seeing it now, right? But no, I, I didn't really get a lot of that, which is curious to me. I think I guess the magic's working, right? I'm finally... <laughs> truly starting to leave star wars behind and i'm really becoming the star trek person i always should have been (laughs) (laughs) from the ulysses garneau addresses the citizens of gaia six soldiers were killed in the unprovoked attack you launched on the congressional destroyer csd ulysses this was in direct violation of the compact of settlement nations therefore you have five minutes to surrender Suffice it to say, the Gaians do not comply. The teams prepare to launch a sortie. 
To Garneau and Jack's surprise, scores of Freedom mobile suits converge on the Ulysses. The Rays are scrambled to coordinate a response, while Garneau orders Jack to personally take part in the battle. Frantic fighting ensues while Mark issues orders from the command center. So, we have two new mechs here. We have the Freedom and the Ray. Do we have thoughts about any of these two suits, my friends? I think the Freedom seems like a friend. I like him. Very boxy. Great little grunt guy. Very uh, rock'em sock'em. Yeah. I this is this is a good this is a good grunt friend. Yeah, my note was like what if the gym hit the gym? And you then mm, you get the freedom. Yeah, a little bulkier, right? Like what if the gym had like the, the Gundam Alex armor or something, you know? Yeah, that's a good comparison. Well there there is a such thing as an armored gym, right? Like I'm pretty sure that's a thing. That sounds right. Or it's, it's, it's either the armored gym or it's the super gym. Because it has, I think it's a, it's either it's a gray suit with I think orange clip-on armor. Yep, mm, you got yeah, it. it now. Hey, yep. there we go. I mean, I have to make the joke. Is there a slim gym? Ah, uh, hmm. sorry, mm. I was le- legally obligated to make that. Go on. This that's actually not the. Uh, oh, it's the, it's it's the powered GM. I think that's what it is. That's what I'm thinking of. Oh, armored gym was introduced in Zionic Front. Oh, interesting. I guess I fought oh. these. <laughs> PMC, that's your homeboy. I know. All right, so the power gym shows up in uh, 0083. Yeah, that's the one I was thinking of. Was the power gym? He, that's a bulky dude. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, the freedom. The freedom is a nice suit. Now, I will say, I when I say it's a nice mobile suit, I'm talking about its line art. Its <laughs> 3D model is not terribly great. When I'm the Freedom is a nice mobile suit, um, but when I say it's nice, I'm talking more about its line art, because as a 3D CG model, there is there is a disconnect for me. There's something about it that just is somewhat unappealing. I'm not really talking about its colors. It's something about its proportions are, are a little bit off. That, And I'm usually the gym guy. Like I, I love gyms and other such grunt suits, Xeonic or otherwise, but... His uh, 3D model doesn't really do much for me. I will say, however, and this is skipping a little bit forward, the fact that the Freedom Mobile Suits have, and they keep, so much battle damage throughout the, uh, I guess, the Gaian battle, that is top-notch. I love seeing battle-damaged robots, and for them to put that much detail into the battle damage they get during this, I really, really enjoy yeah, I, I think I agree. I prefer the line art. The obviously they're colored in the film to represent Gaia, so earth tones. While those earth tones were cool to see on the settlement, I don't like those colors on a mech. The, the puke green doesn't do it for me. They look like bootleg colors. Yeah, like this is this is the bootleg dollar store version of the actual Jim Freedom, right? Mm-hmm. See, they looked at me like I thought maybe they were like just stained with like plant matter or something. Like they were trying huh? to get the earthen tones in there. So these, are like, oh yeah, these are the Gaian mobile suits. I'm actually surprised how many mobile suits the Gaians have. Like this, this also speaks yeah. to the fact that they're not just a bunch of like pot smoking peaceniks going, yeah, we're gonna completely disarm. Like they know, they know the ways of the world, though. To be fair, Graves should know exactly what consent's about. Like, oh, why is consent doing this? I don't know. My dude, come on. Yeah. Writing's on the wall. 
I, I feel like the film could have done a better job telegraphing or really just telling me, the viewer, that the rays were unmanned, that they're the drone mobile suits. I, that's not really like a thematic concern with the film, but um, it's like a it's a plot point that the first time actually passed me by. I didn't realize it until a rewatch. Like, oh, there are no, you know, these are unmanned mobile suits. Yeah, there's there's one line I believe where they say that they're uh, unmanned mobile suits. That's the note I have in here because I didn't catch that until the second time I watched it too. It's like whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute. These are mobile dolls. That's yeah. But they're you're right. They don't do anything with it. But they just say, oh yeah, they're unmanned drone mobile suits. Like Trey's would hate these motherfuckers. Yeah, he would. Of course, the unmanned guess- mobile suit thing is a primary concern of G Savior the PS2 game. Oh, that is true. Yeah, and of course. Do yourself a favor. If you ever have like 30 minutes to kill, watch PMSP speedrun G-Saver the video game. It's a good time. Oh, absolutely. I need to play it myself, honestly. I would have done so probably a long time ago, but I'm just glad that like PlayStation, Sony emulators have come so far. Mm-hmm. I think they're pretty much perfect nowadays. That's great. You know, if, if we're switching gears and talking about the Ray now, that is like that's just the most distilled aggravated and otherwise just wild just zeon dot tiff not even zeon <laughs> jpeg zeon dot tiff mm-hmm. just design language again it may not come off quite so well as a 3d cg model but the line work for the ray is that's a wicked looking suit it's very reptilian this is one of the I apologize if I'm getting the name wrong, but Ishioka Designs, the American artist who's working at Digital Muse. I might be misremembering his last name, but he worked on this and he worked on the Guppy, which of course was featured in the beginning of the film. This one I'm a little less taken with. I agree. It's very like Xeon coded. It's very reptilian. It reminds me of like a cheap action figure you might find at in Kmart in the toy section in 1995, like for a show that was canceled after 13 episodes that featured like reptile mechs in space there's something there's something i find aesthetically unappealing about it i can't quite put my finger on it but again that might be the point because it's supposed to be off-putting and cold even though the film has nothing to say about your own warfare and to be honest it doesn't need to juggle every ball every ball in the air that's fine um just something to keep in mind you know actually that you brought up like cheap toys to a show that was canceled now you bring that up i'm getting uh contra of course is a big property it's obviously not Mm. a cancel thing i'm getting a little bit of contra vibes here excuse me but i believe there's an old toy line called battle planets yes that's what i was thinking of andy thank god nice internet high five (laughs) well i actually do uh because one of the play sets i own i do actually see some of uh aesthetic from that and the one that i had as a kid so i know exactly what you're talking about Now, now that vibe works for me but I had I was googling this. I just couldn't. I just had a memory of this these <laughs> these motherfuckers. I never owned them, but a friend did. But I remember this aesthetic. And I, the one thing I kept returning back to returning to is the Men in Black TV show, which features no Max. It's actually a really good cartoon. But I that's like the aesthetic I was thinking of, like a low rent version of the Men in Black show. No disrespect to um, Battle Planets. Okay, war, apparently, excuse me, war it's planets, war, war planets. planets, yeah. Because I typed in battle planets, like, no, not gotcha, man. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Andy. 
I'm glad I could help. PMC, do you like the Rays? Uh, they're a little, they're a little squat, a little kind of spread out. I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I feel like maybe this is the idea that they're not quite like humanoid. <laughs> they're a little, they have like a little bit of bug-like nature to them. And uh, I, I like a, a bug mech to be fair. I do like mm, bug mechs. But I want a bug mech to be more bug-like. You know, I need like some stonefly ass mechs, you know, whereas <laughs> this, uh, this is more like, you know, bug, bug human abomination. Yeah, PMC, this is when you should tell anyone, everyone that you actually spent money on physical media. You picked up a copy of Dunbine on Blu-ray. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I did. I did do that. I, I got that and, and, and bottoms on sale. All right. So it goes. I was amazed. PMC and I have been friends for a long time, but we've been podcasting about mechs for almost five years, and he's bought one thing on physical media, mm-hmm. which was... Promare. Uh, Promare. Yeah. And... And that pro the the promare to Dunbine pipeline is real, my friends. I did I did pre order Gunbuster as well, so but that hasn't Good. released yet. Hmm. In fact, I'll I'll this is the mobile suit I was thinking of that the Ray reminds me of. It's from Double Zeta, the AM AMX dash one oh two ZA. Hmm. Like that. Like the the Ray is the evolved form of that, really, if you ask me. Is that just done up to the tenth, the nth degree of just Zeon expression? The ZA is Z S S A for those curious. Yeah, I'm totally seeing it. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the inexperienced guy and pilots, Dieter included, are soon overwhelmed by the coordinated precision and prowess of the unmanned rays. Mark orders them to retreat. They're picking us off like ducks in a shooting gallery, Mark admits. Meanwhile, Mimi, staring, starring in another movie entirely, escapes from her room, breaks through the hallway ceiling, and drops to the floor. So my summary here doubles as commentary. This shit is wild. And she hits a kid, too. It's super funny. This is perfect. Oh, no, no notes. Yeah, no See, notes. That, oh, I'm, I guess I'm just more sensitive to stuff like that. But like, she hits that kid, and that kid is actually crying. It's like, man... <laughs> Awful. Back in the com- back in the command center, Mark tells Mimi that he's going to go out in the G Savior, just as Jack, blasting through space towards the settlement, dispatches Guy and pilots with ease. Like so many Gundam pilots before him, Jack situates the G Savior on the catapult deck before he's launched into space. Before we continue on, I do want to point out what you just said. There is a catapult launch in G Savior. Yeah, that Speak. is just not the tightest stuff. It's 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 surreal. I love it. Wait, okay. Mark situates the G Savior on the catapult deck, right? Yes. yes. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, it's it's late, folks. PMC mm. and I are an hour five of podcasting today. <laughs> I guess if if we're talking about the war, I don't know if we want to get through a commentary first and then come back to the the battle scenes, but there's mm. a lot of really good stuff that happens with this. Oh yeah, totally. We'll get there later. Don't worry, Andy. Right, I see. I see you're bold here. I know we move to these battle segments quickly. Any standout moments? Okay. You can cut that out. Make sure that cut that out. Make it look like I pretended that I actually did read all of your guys's notes. Sorry. 
Mimi, now securely on board the Ulysses, which has docked in the settlement, meets with Garneau, who asks her if she has the sample. She tells him that she doesn't, but she knows how to get it. Mark, now in the thick of battle, engages the enemy suits in space, just as Bugus touch down in the settlement. General Garneau, accompanied by a squad of armed soldiers, arrests Counselor Graves, who, spitting in the eye of authority, resists, but is soon subdued. Garneau proceeds to intercept Cynthia and Kobe, whom he pressures to hand over the sample. Reluctantly, Cynthia complies. However, before the transfer happens, Kobe snatches the sample and runs. Garneau's soldiers open fire, subduing her. Mimi grabs the sample and hands it over to Garneau. On top of the settlement windows, the dick measuring contest that has been building between Mark and Jack finally reaches its height. Beam sabers drawn, the two clash. Inside the colony, Cynthia tells Garneau that the sample is useless without her, which causes him to laugh. You never intended for either one of us to discover an alternative method to agriculture because there's way too much power to be had from selective starvation, Cynthia declares. Ding, 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 ding. Meanwhile, Mark and Jack's duel gets more frantic. At one point, after targeting the G-Savior's arm with the raised shoulder weapon, Jack manages to pin Mark. Pardon yet another Star Wars reference, but once struck down, Mark becomes more powerful than Jack could possibly imagine and lands a critical blow on his custom raid. It's raid, right? Not Ray? Yeah, I think it's, yes, that's right. R-A-I. With his beam saver. Instead of finishing off Mark in an I won't kill you, but I don't have to save you moment, channeling his inner Batman, tells Jack that he'd rather watch his ass fry before a congressional subcommittee. So I, so I know I move through these battle segments quickly. Andy, I know you have something to say here. Any standout moments for you? This entire battle is a standout moment for me. Like almost everything that we see throughout it. I've, I've got, I think the majority of my notes for like page two that I have is all about this. <laughs> kind of like the uh, going through the, uh, I guess, the debris field when the G-Savior first launches. A lot of what happens during this entire battle scene is legitimately thrilling uh i do want to start out by saying that when uh the leader of gaia whose name i already forgot he says they jammed our broadcast capabilities we couldn't surrender if we wanted to marks great they just gave us a five minute head start again this guy (laughs) some of that cure and charm but uh, we have startup engine sounds for our gym freedoms the fact that there are just like a hundred gems on screen at once being mowed down by a hundred rays at once. I do want to point out something I noticed. Uh, I think I noticed this my first time through when all the gems are flying out and they're saying, we can't see anything. Where are, you know, where are the enemies at? The rays fly in behind the sun, which is a classic aerial tactic with fighter planes, which I thought was just a really neat idea to include that. Even in you know the UC-223, which is untold thousands of years after, well, it's not untold, but it's a long time after World War II, etc., that they're still using those, you know, classic battle tactics. And of course, that's a, you know, throwback to Amaro in First Gundam as well. You know, he does the same thing very, it's one of his first maneuvers. No, oh, okay. It's been 
over a decade since I've seen First Gundam, but that is I'm good. I'm glad to know that. Good. I see. I already brought up the uh, all the battle damage gems. Like, just what a tremendous look to go to that level of detail. Uh, <laughs> again, oh, let's see. Don't want to go too much further here. There's some more things for you to cut out there. Uh, because I want to bring up where he says no kiss for you to Cynthia's dad, but I don't know if we're going to talk about that scene later. No, bring that up now because I forgot to put in the notes. I like that scene. Okay. Another this guy scene as uh, Mark is telling Cynthia, is like, okay, I'm, I'm going to go out in the G-Savior. I got to do my part. Gives her a big kiss. Runs, runs off. Stops by her father and says, no kiss for you. Again, this absolute guy. <laughs> oh, you know what? Uh, I, I should put the Ava Masato quote when uh, like gives her the kiss and says, we'll do the rest later. I should put that with Mark and Graves. <laughs> I'm uh mm, no uh, <clears throat> uh let's see. I'm just gonna have to just just like pour out all of my love for this scene. It was one after another. Uh, there's when Jack is is in his ray, his rye. He's flying towards the battlefield. And he just kicks his leg boosters off again. Just what a good move. What good just character energy written into and animated into these mobile suits uh and then uh, uh david lovegren who is of course playing jack he's just eating this whole scene up like he's doing such a terrific job being such a good bad guy major props to him i already brought up the in my notes the bloody mobile suit catapult scene terrific only bloody vulcan cannons because everyone knows that vulcan cannons are the best uh, and then we, we step out for a second, but then we come back with a twisting camera shot all the way through the mirrors that extend out into space from the colony. A fantastic shot. Uh, I know I think we all kind of have a, a, a soft spot, or at least a, a good spot for this, when um, all the fighting's happening on the mirrors of the colony. Eventually, Mark uh, gets the G-Savior's arm stuck in some of that debris, and disengaging the G-Savior's armor to release that arm to then do the Crusader chop, basically, on Jack's Ray. Tremendous, not just a good look, but also just understanding the fiction, right? And working scenes around what is known and what our characters know to make it work. Another just terrific look for that whole scene. Yeah, there's a lot of good standout moments here. The one thing I wish, though, I wish there was more of a confrontation between Jack and Mark. Like, they do fight, yes, but it feels a little bit anticlimactic. I feel like it's a little on the shorter side. I want there to be more of a, a reckoning here. Like, I want Mark to yell at Jack and vice versa. I want them to talk to, talk as maybe like shout to each other and not, like, at each other. Like, otherwise, like, what's the point? Like drop another Star Wars reference like Obi-Wan uh, really dropped the ball in this regard you have this confrontation that's been built up for decades and yet the characters don't really say anything to each other I feel like there should be more of a reckoning here between Mark and Jack probably I, I feel like I enjoyed what I got mm -hmm. you know I mean maybe it is just a little bit simple of you know David Lovegren being bad and uh, 
whoever plays Mark, whose name I already forgot again. Brennan Elliott. <laughs> Brennan Elliott. Thank you. Um, and then I just, I just, I think I can just appreciate that they're obviously having a fun time, yeah. and the animators are having a fun time doing the mobile suits. I agree with your point, but I feel like in a, in a case like this, I can also just appreciate just the joy that is on screen from all those involved. Yeah, it's a, to be fair, it's a minor point for me. Doesn't really ding the film much. And then actually, speaking of Jack, one thing I noticed is when he gets. When he's down, I forget what actually uh, predicates this, but when he gets up, when he gets up in his ray, he's standing back up. He doesn't just get up, right? He uses his, he blasts his verniers to stand himself up. Again, kind of just understanding the fiction. And if you listen closely, uh, it almost sounds like his engine is growling, like as it goes off. And I'm like, okay, that partnered with the red eye and as it's just closing into the camera to come after Mark, another fantastic just piece of, I mean, it's subtle filmmaking, but it's good filmmaking. Yeah, put that one under the Graham Campbell Wikipedia page right there. <laughs> you got you got it. One of these, if you have a spare ten minutes, Andy, you got to read it. It's it's very self indulgent. I mean, I I'm not gonna be upset about that. <laughs> oh no, I love I love that it's written that way. Whoever wrote oh, sure, it, it's, sure. it's very fun. Well, I just dominated that entire part about just talking about how great the battle is. I guess I'll leave the floor open to you guys to hopefully share with my sentiments. Oh, I completely agree. The the lot of fun bits in this this uh, fight scene. <laughs> yeah, I do really like the the armor detaching from the arm as sort of a a, a final bit, a sort of uh I mean, I, I think it fits a little bit in terms of Mark always willing to be someone who's just willing to to swing for the fences, to go for the long shot. Uh, that you know that that works for him. I think he uh, honestly, it's a lot of fun seeing the freedoms blow up. <laughs> yeah. they're kind of they blow up real good. They smash real nice. Um, yeah, that animation is surprisingly good. Yeah, like the, yeah. the the way rockets, like the one rocket bouncing off Dieter's shield, is really just a pleasant thing to watch. Um, so yeah, no, it's 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 a lot of fun. It's just it's it goes down easy. That could be the slogan for G Savior. It goes down easy. It works every time. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> this guy, am I right? There is, uh, I think, we're talking about stuff exploding really well too. When uh, Mark and Jack are fighting on the colony mirrors just having all that debris float up and just the the i think it's detris or detris just floating around them as the camera floats around and goes around them during the battle another just really good look for the movie and it, where it matters it, it doesn't really feel like gc ever takes the easy way out you know it's it's yeah there's a there's a lot to appreciate going on just gundam versus I don't want to say Gundam because there's only one. Gundam versus Mobile Suit. Yeah, I'm. I'm just. I'm babbling now, but it. It is a thrilling scene for someone like me. Uh, that, especially with the the Mobile Suits feeling as heavy as they do. Like I understand that's not traditional Gundam movement, but I love it because of that. Especially Jack jumping in like that saber already ignited. Terrific look. As as I said in my as I said. Probably a hundred times in my Gundam Wing review, it's baller. It just is baller. Not out of the woods yet. 
The squad of automated rays descend on the G-Savior, but are intercepted by Philippe, who, at the 11th hour, arrives with an army twice the size of the congressional force. Recognize that they, recognizing that they've overplayed their hand, Garneau orders a retreat. I have an announcement to make, which is, oh. unfortunately, I've discovered in looking up the lineage of the G-Savior that Philippe's suit in this battle is actually called the Eye Savior. That is correct, yes. The Illusion Savior. Huh. Does it get to the end of the alphabet? No way. No, I think there's just F, I, and G as far as I know. Okay. Oh, there's also the J Savior. Oh, J, yes, yes, yes. The dashing J mm. Savior. <laughs> Love the J Savior design. It is good. It, it took a little while to grow on me. I think like most uh, Savior suits did, but it's there. Mimi, having yet another crisis of faith after Garneau admitted his indifference to the suffering of millions, returns the sample to Cynthia and asks for her forgiveness. She then accompanies the general to a guy in shuttle, which he chose to, which he chose to shield their escape. Mark, after transforming the G-Savior into terrain mode, goes to liberate the settlement, making quick work of the remaining Bugus. This is maybe the thing that impressed me the most on my second rewatch. And this is also probably because I spent the time to unlock G-Savior terrain mode and G-Savior, which is the hardest um. thing to do in that game. Uh, but the difference, like, they really do have a cool little transformation sequence. They just pull the parts off and rewire it. And uh, it's very brief, but actually, I kind of like it. I kind of like the way he just sort of shows up and shanks him. It's pretty good. Oh, I love that entire scene. My notes written for this are in all caps. <laughs> <laughs> the only bloody G-Savior rearming sequence, comma, how baller. Because it is baller. You're right. It's, it's a little short, but it's another one of those things I've always loved about robot shows. You've got hangar scenes, you've got launch sequence scenes, and you've got rearming scenes. And those are, and there's more because everything about giant robots is great. We yeah, just, just rearming, taking armor off, putting something on, especially while the camera just kind of spins or even just the mobile suit spins as it kind of corkscrews up through the elevator terrific look and then yeah just smashing just jumping out of that elevator and immediately just chopping boogoos in half terrific look all around i like the interface interface in the g saver during this transformation very Chuck E. cheese vibes with like those purple <laughs> tones very of the time but very nice and i think you already brought up the eye savior i will say that again CG model for that one kind of falls apart for me. It's it's it looks like someone took uh, a, a JPEG or whatever and pressed Control T and just squished it a little bit without preserving its dimensions. But again, line line art for the Ice Saver is pretty rad. Not yeah. gonna lie, it's 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 unorthodox to say the least. It's a tight it's a tight design. I think this this might be one of those designs that Tomino had actually always wanted. It's like, aha, I'll I'll prove it. I'll make a uh, mobile suit you can't make a toy out of. And I'm like, well, <laughs> you finally succeeded later on with the Eye Savior. Yeah, Eye Savior. Eye Savior definitely is, is difficult to translate to other things. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. This thing whips the line art. Oh, it's it's good. It's very good. On the guy in shuttle, Mimi reveals her duplicity to the general 
as two rays programmed to shoot down any guy in craft descend on the shuttle. Mimi revels in the irony of it all before the shuttle explodes. <laughs> so, despite severe inconsistencies in her characterization, I think that when the dust has settled, Mimi deserves to be the recipient of the I support women's rights, but more importantly, I support women's wrongs meme. Um, <laughs> justice for Mimi, even though I have issues with her characterization, uh, she's she's fun to have in this film. Agreed. Even though I do have trouble, I, I get why she does it. I just have trouble squaring it with the rest of her characterization. I'm not quite bought into the uh, this change of faith at the in the eleventh hour. I have in my notes that uh, leaving in a guy in craft is a decision. Yeah, he, he really. I mean, it's funny they, they really <laughs> highlight Garneau saying it too. He's like, "Oh, well, given how things are going outside, we better escape." Because he has the option. It's not like it's the only ship. Garneau right. chooses to leave it a guy in craft, and it does not go well. No, and curiously enough, it's the the mobile rays that kill him, right, and kill everyone on the ship. And I think something we had brought up earlier is like they introduce mobile dolls, but they don't introduce anything having to do with the consideration of their use. But then at the end, we see how their use can go wrong. And still, they kind of don't say anything outside of just what we see. It's fitting. It's a fitting death for Garno et al. But you're right. I feel like I can agree in this context where it's like, you introduce mobile dolls, which they made an entire show about, and then you're just kind of not going to do quite as much as you probably could. Yes, I understand the movie's only 90 minutes, but... Really, we need that director's uh, cut. Like, yes, um, give me the four-hour-long G Savior cut. <laughs> what's the uh, Ridley Scott film Kingdom of Heaven? Uh, the one with the the sick-ass director's cut that supersedes the original film. One of the rare instances of that. That's one of the movies like when everyone comes together and goes, you know what? The director's cut's actually better than the theatrical release. That and oh. like the Lord of the Rings films. Oh, see, I was about to say, I was about to do my quota here and be like, well, now it's time to bring up the motion picture. But I'm of the, you know, I'm of the assumption that the special longer version is the best version of that film. I like the director's cut and there's a lot of things I appreciate about the director's cut. But I don't know. The the added like the added background sound effects, the added BGM, the awful, actually awful sounding lightning sounds they gave the Vidra probe. Some of that stuff kind of ruins the more documentary feeling that I get from the theatrical and special longer version. But the special longer version has everything good from the director's cut with nothing I don't necessarily care as much about with the director's cut. And it's the entire movie. So I have to like the most motion picture motion picture. <laughs> There's a back of the box quote. Yeah, right. <laughs> In an abbreviated denouement, as the film barrels to the conclusion of its sub-90-minute runtime, minus credits, Graves holds a formal conference where he addresses humanity? Gaians? Who knows? Definitely Gaians, or a select grouping of Gaians. Today, he declares, not Independence Day, something else, but very similar. Today, he declares, we stand on the threshold of our independence, recognized as side eight, we find ourselves on the verge of curing the ultimate ill to ever plague mankind. 
global famine. My friends, as we face such a monumental achievement together, I ask all of us to remember our fallen comrades who gave the ultimate sacrifice so that if Side 8 should last a thousand years, Gaians will say this was their finest hour. The crowd erupts into cheers. This place is going to explode in like a week. I can't even. <laughs> I I mean, look, I like Blue Man Kuma's performance here, but this <laughs> this like victory speech is I'm I'm not convinced. I'm concerned. I'm, you know, I'm I'm doing the side eye, you know, I'm wondering what's happening. PMC's packing up all his house plants and getting the fuck out of Gaia. Maybe Mark is <laughs> right. Maybe you should leave Gaia. Mm. I mean, they, all they did was kill the general. I mean, the army can still function with literally everybody below the general still alive. Yeah, you think in a couple of weeks, like, oh, here's consent again with not just two people. Yeah, is, <laughs> is the president really going to say, hey, you killed, you killed this general? All right, cool. I don't think so. No, probably not. If I had to play devil's advocate, maybe the I don't like the president much, but maybe the president were like, you know, what, finally, I, I got guard no off my back. Finally, I don't have to deal with that war hawk. Mm-hmm. But again, that's, that's giving the president the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. Mark, before he leaves, visits Cynthia in the lab to tell her he is planning to stand trial on Earth, so neither one of them is blamed for the murder of the security guard. I have to prove my innocence, Mark stresses. My father offered you asylum, Cynthia counters. They have a bit of a back and forth until Mark convinces Cynthia to come to Earth with him. End film. In my notes I go, oh no, Mark, what is you doing? They're going to kill you. Stay on Gaia. What are you, Mark, consent is still in power. They're going to murder you. He's going to end up in a jail cell with his coworkers, and that's going to be, that's the sequel. Well, PMC, you already said that Simmons was killed. Didn't you earlier, Simmons and Daggett? Oh, maybe they were, yeah. That's, yeah. I mean, they were marched off, and maybe... who Did they end up in a jail cell? Did they just get executed? Who could say? Yeah, it it is curious. The first time I watched the movie, I was like... Well, I was the same as you guys. Like, Mark, what are you doing? This is a terrible idea. The second time I watched it, as I wrote in my notes, I feel like I can respect Mark's decision to undergo court-martial, honestly, since it does, without doing so, it does continue to paint Gaia in a bad light with literally everybody, excuse me, literally everybody on Earth. But then now it's like, yeah, but it is still a bad idea. (laughs) I've come full 360 on it. I'm going right back to the bar in New Manhattan. That's where you'll find me. (laughs) Yeah. Because you're right, the consent's still in power, and everyone, and including the press, well, maybe not the press so much, but everyone knows that Mark's guilty. Is he even going to get a uh, undergo court martial? Because he's not also part of the military. Don't only military personnel undergo court martial? That's a good point. So he would be before a military tribunal, correct? I think. Well, Ooh, he I... wasn't acting in military capacity, was he? Because he's not an active. I don't know. I don't know military law. They would just make it up anyway, honestly. Yeah, probably. All well, I can- know about court martials is from Star Trek anyway, because it seems like <laughs> it, people go under one like every seven episodes. Mm-hmm. But again, it might speak just to how weak um, or ineffectual consent is. Like when we're talking about the balance of power. Yeah, um, consent has ambitions, but they don't. They might not have the means to pull them off. Whether it, that means means military power or political power. 
Like they were, they got their asses handed to them by the Illuminati, who, for a splinter group, are very well stocked. But there, that's that's where this film leaves us. Uh, after ten plus hours of podcasting, here we are at the end of G Savior, and I couldn't be I couldn't be happier to spread the good word of G Savior, but also watch G Savior for the first time. I I very much enjoyed it, surprisingly and unironically too. the The film has flaws. The film is by no means perfect, um, but it's it's very warm. It's a comforting blanket to slip into, especially com- coming from someone who grew up with 90s sci-fi. Um, but also it has some solid writing and some decent ideas. I wish those ideas had time to mature and were explored more thoroughly, but still I think this is a, a fun foundation for what could be um, a more extensive uh, like sub-franchise under the Gundam umbrella. You know, People talk about them going back and animating G Savior. I would just prefer a live action sequel. Most of the cast is still alive, and I think mm-hmm. that they could totally have fun with it. Yeah, I mean, if I had to throw in uh, a final word, I mean, the answer is there's no reason to hate or fear G Savior. It is exactly what it appears to be, and I think more importantly, it is exactly what its cast thought it was, which is to say, '90s science fiction television. They thought it was like a pilot maybe to become part of a series. And that's exactly how it feels watching it. I I think and the cast turns in good work. Uh, You know, the writing is sort of taking some swings. Um, It's not quite given the time to really go places. You know, it's only uh, less than 90 minutes really. But nevertheless, if you're a fan of sci-fi TV or, you know, people who like, you know, Stargate nineties track, old, old Battlestar Galactica, You'll be fine here. You'll be at home. And I think the CG holds up surprisingly well. As You know, it's it's fun to watch. It makes sense. Uh, you know, communicates the action. So this is perfectly serviceable. Like, there is, this is not, this is not some, you know, threadbare FMV cutscenes from a 90s, you know, Wing Commander or something. Like, this is definitely like better than the Wing Commander cutscenes. So my apologies to Mark Hamill. And I feel like I'm in complete agreeance. It is, as I said in our first episode, it's not Robot Jocks, right? Because Robot Jocks is actually brilliant. But G-Savior is good. Like, it, uh, it is, I think, PMC, as you put it, it is a serviceable film. You know, it has a beginning, middle, and end, which I realize is not high praise, but it is there. Uh, you have some fun character moments. You have definitely some, some av- some outrageously fun mecha moments. Um, I I really may not be able to add too much more. I agree that it's it's for those who grew up on that type of sci-fi. You will definitely be right at home, even if you don't know anything about Gundam, because this is definitely a show that does not belabor uh, what makes Gundam Gundam, for better or for worse. Usually, I tell people when they want to get into Gundams, like you got to watch the first one, so you know what all the others are copying. Copying is a harsh word, but you know, you got to know who your Shar is because there's always going to be one. You got to know who your factions are, why the Gundam's important, your, you know, your love triangles, your smacking people and whatnot. All of that's kind of defined in the first one, so that's where you should learn it from and then go on. I don't necessarily agree with that anymore, but that's kind of what I'm getting at. But you don't have to have seen the original Gundam to enjoy what G-Savior is trying to give you, 
right? It helps perhaps to see some of those tropes in action in a completely different environment, but it's not necessary. There's joy simply inherent to, you know, G Savior's environment, its execution and what it exists to be. I'm thrilled to have actually watched it for the second time. I guess I'm technically my fourth, but my second time in over a decade and to just do a, almost a 180 on it and appreciate it that I do now instead of, I think what I said, my review was nine years ago, uh, not entirely bad, but wholly ungood. And I'm glad I no longer feel that way anymore. It has I, a beginning, middle and end. Andy, Engine Veer on Twitter. You're right. <laughs> there are robots. But, and honestly, what else can you ask for? Robots. Yeah. I is, yeah. That's where I need to be. That's my baseline. Well, Andy, thank you so much for joining us on this adventure. We've podcasted, just the three of us, almost six hours on G-Savior. So splitting this up into two parts was a wise decision on my part. I'm going to pat myself on the back right now. You should, yes. I am sh- I'm shocked. I, and also, we could have gone on probably another two hours if we wanted to. There's still more to G-Savior to talk about. But I still think this is a thorough examination of the, the film, plot point by plot point. Andy, any final thoughts? Where can the good people find you? Oh, they can find me on Twitter primarily. Uh, that's at E-N-G-I-N-V-I-R, Engine Veer, on Twitter. Uh, I would probably share a Mastodon or uh, a, something like that, but I don't actually know what my Mastodon at is, so I'm not going to do that. Uh, but if you find me on Twitter, you should be able to find me at those other places too. Uh, you can also find my work at thebigoarchive.com, uh, where there is some other forms of communication there as well. Excellent. And fret not, Andy fans. Andy will be returning to Giant Robot FM sometime in the future, to give you a little tease. PMC, why don't you hit the good people with our plugs? So, if you enjoyed all of this excellent G-Savior coverage and you want to support us, there are a few ways you can do that. First off, you can rate and review us on the podcatcher of choice. Always appreciated. We are an independent podcast, so we rely on that word of mouth to get the news out there about what we're doing. should mention that next up on the main feed, uh, we're going to be bringing out some of our other stuff uh, from you know some, some Patreon-exclusive stuff on the main feed. We're going to have an announcement show next week that'll cover all this, but basically, TLDR, look forward to... An extremely exhaustive look into Gunbuster coming up uh, in in the summer months. Uh, we're, as I said, we're going to uh, more more formally announce those plans soon, but please look forward to those. We do have a Patreon, patreon.com slash giantrobotfm, where we have some patron-exclusive benefits, such as a Discord. We have a series of podcasts that cover The Witch from Mercury on a week-to-week basis as it airs. Uh, the first of those episodes for Season 2 is available on the main feed. It was uh, last week's main feed release. Uh, episode two will be coming out, and that will be patron exclusive, uh, you know, at least initially. We also have a, another podcast called Simulator, where we give Mecha Video Games the same treatment that we give Mecha Anime. Uh, we've covered Armored Core. You can find those episodes on the main feed. We uh, just recorded our Frame Grid Simulator, so that will be coming soon to our Simulator patrons. Uh, check all that stuff out at patreon.com slash giantrobotfm if you're interested. 
I'm going to give credit to Dwarf S for the graphics that we use and credit to Fretzel, hashtag band Fretzel, for the music that we use. Now, Andy, as our final note, I need you to give me a resounding answer here. Is G-Savior canon? Absolutely. 100%. And you can bite it if you think otherwise.